Welcome back to the 411 Podcasting Network. I am your host, Larry Zonka, and this is episode 97 of the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, the 411mania.com website, and any major podcasting platform. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. Joining me tonight, making a return to the show... A young man I like to think I've taken under my wing. He's kind of like a son <laughs> to me. Kevin Panto. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, just, yeah, enjoying some wrestling over the weekend, uh, some live NXT, and then some Elimination Chamber. So it's been pretty fun. That's right. And also, just to let everybody know, Kevin actually joined me yesterday, and we recorded a, uh, a retro review, which will drop in the next couple weeks, as we looked back at the first NXT TakeOver special arrival, and we had a good time talking about that. It was a good time. It was a nice uh, hour and like two hour show, brisk and fun to look back at everybody six years ago now, which is insane to think that we've had the network for that long. It really is when you think about it. And obviously, speaking of NXT, and you already mentioned it, you got to go to an NXT live event in Cleveland, correct? Yes. So yeah. you got to go to this live event. I've been to NXT live shows, they're a lot of fun. Uh, let us know about your trip. What did you think of the show, man? Um, well, just to give a little background here, um, the first time that NXT, because remember uh, in 2014 or when NXT was first starting, they really only did the Florida loop, you know, Largo and, and Melbourne and those places. Um, in 2015, they took their first trip outside of Florida and it happened to be to Columbus, Ohio, which is like two hours away from where I live. <clears throat> so, you know, we were excited. We bought the tickets. And then I guess that sold so well that they added a Cleveland show the very next night. And that's much closer to me. And we just decided we'd go to that one, too. <laughs> um, and it turned out to be really fun. Uh, not to go too far off, but that was in 2015. Uh, they did a nice mix of the rosters. So, like, we got Neville versus Cesaro in 2015. It's on, like, the NXT Greatest Matches DVD or Blu-ray special. Um, they ran, like, this incredible Tyson Kidd, Hideo, Tommy match that blew my mind. They ran Finn Balor, Cesaro in 2015, which was insane. Um so yeah, every year they've been keep coming back to Cleveland, and we, you know, I go every year. Uh, this time around was a lot of fun. Um, the way that they set up their seating is you buy ringside seats, and then it's first come first serve. So you kind of have to stand outside for a few hours in the cold in Cleveland uh, to get a good seat. Um, but anyone who follows me on Twitter at the Kevsta T H E underscore K E V S T A A A cheap plug. Um, You'll see that I got a ton of great pictures because I was right by the aisle. Uh, got some selfies with Dio Madden, Keith Lee, Tegan Knox, and Johnny Gargano. Uh, the show itself, like I said, a lot of fun. We got a lot of people that never seem to travel or like haven't before. Like we had Shane Thorne, Bronson Reed, Dexter Loomis, Santana Garrett, um, which was pretty cool to see new people. Uh, first time I got to see the Brozerweights. They're so much fun. <laughs> um you know, Matt Riddle just looks like the most fun guy in the world. He came out and just, you can't help but smile when he's there, you know? Um, he got Riddle's gonna smoke you chance, and he thought that was the most fun, like, thing ever. He's making, like, you know, smoking signs with his hands. It was a blast. Uh, just to go over the card real quick, Brozoways beat Elliot Sexton and Shane Thorne. Bronson Reed beat Dexter Loomis, who got a Jake from State Farm chant because he wrestled in khakis. <laughs> <laughs> Candice LeRae beat Santana Garrett. It was good. 
Adam Cole and Roderick Strong lost to Dio Madden and Keith Lee. Dio Madden is a massive man in real in person. <laughs> oh, he's a big tall dude, man. He's, he's I didn't know he was that big. Like he he was he looked like he looks like a star. Um Cameron Grimes lost to Damian Priest. Uh I lost my voice mostly when Dakota Kai, Raquel Gonzalez, and Aaliyah beat Kaden Carden, Mia Yim, Tika Knox. That was probably my favorite match of the night. Just a really enjoyable six woman tag. Uh, main event, Tommaso Ciampa beat Austin Theory. Now, were you going to say something? No, no, you're good. Oh, okay. Sorry, Adam. Sorry, I don't mean to take up too much time with this. No, you're good, man. <laughs> After the main, like every time they've come to Cleveland, obviously Johnny Gargano's been, uh, he's like CM Punk in Chicago levels of over in Cleveland. And he wasn't on this card and we figured, you know, he wasn't on the Columbus show. We figured no Gargano since he's a heel. We don't want him to come out in Cleveland. So Chamba was cutting the promo to end the show saying, just, you know, thanking the crowd and everything. The lights go out. And when they come on, Gargano's in the ring. He super kicks him a few times, throws him out, and then starts cutting this promo about just, you know, how much he likes Cleveland. And Chamba had made a note of getting TakeOver Cleveland to become a thing. And Johnny's like, I'm not going to let that scumbag steal the thunder. If TakeOver Cleveland's happening, it's because I have some pull around here. Um and then he talked into the camera that they had and was like, Trips, we have to get a takeover Cleveland set up. So hopefully they do that. Um, but yeah, just a great show. Every time they come, it's like two hours and 15 minutes. Bridge show, get in, get out, go home. It, it's it's so much fun. Yeah, and that, that's the best thing when you get a show like that because I went to an NXT show. Um, talked to you about that uh, yesterday um, mm-hmm. with uh, Jeremy here in North Carolina, Carabas Arena. It's, yeah, it's like those shows average. They're anywhere from like just around two to two and a half hours. And mm-hmm. they're they're kind of like a perfect house show mix, and you get a lot of fun stuff. Like you were in Cleveland, so you got the cool Gargano surprise. When, yep. when we went to the show, it was we had Finn Balor in the main event doing Ric Flair spots, so it was just <laughs> a ton of fun. Like uh, No Way Jose was on that show and was insanely over. Uh, Elias was on that show. This was back when Austin Aries was still on NXT as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's such a fun time, and I um I always tend to enjoy them, and I'm glad you got to go and get a, get a little time out of the regular reviewing and enjoy some live wrestling. Yeah, it was nice. You know, I took the day off of work, took the day off of any reviews for anything, and I was like, I'm just gonna get out there. We had some tacos before the show. It was great. Um, yeah, just a really fun night. Now, what I want to know is is how are you going to deal with it when the big dog Dakota Kai t- finds out you turned on her and took a pic with Tegan Knox? <laughs> it was funny because there was a girl sitting in front of us who, when I was cheering for Tegan Knox, I mean, for Dakota Kai, she turned around and she's like, you like Dakota Kai more than Tegan Knox? Like, she was so offended that this was a thing. And I said, I love them both. I just, Dakota's my favorite. Uh, Dakota, the thing, I would have loved to have gotten a picture of her, but, you know, she's healing it up. She walked right past, like, everybody. Um, I think one fan managed to stop her, and she did, like, a quick pose, but walked away. Uh, but, yeah, she was not having it. Only the only, only the baby faces were. They, they, they were baby facing it up hard. That's cool, though. Yeah, I, I am very glad to hear you had a good time. It's, um, <clears throat> like I said, it's always good to go to some live wrestling when you get the chance. And, um, that's one of the things I enjoyed when I actually moved on south and, um, because it was funny, like when I was living in Pittsburgh earlier in my youth, and then mm-hmm. I uh, went to college in West Virginia and stuff, there wasn't like a ton of wrestling going on. Cause it was mostly just like WWE stuff yeah. at the time that would come through. And like, the, I'd get the occasional, like, 
WCW house show in Pittsburgh, but they were always like, they always had to run at like one of the college arenas because the Civic Arena back in the day was WWE exclusive. And then like, they'd announce like Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Sean Waltman, and Hulk Hogan. And then you'd get there and you'd be like, we're offering refunds because Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Sean Waltman, and Hulk Hogan aren't attending tonight. And then like, you'd get an opener of like Bobby Eaton and Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. Now, don't get me fucking wrong. I love beautiful Bobby Eaton. He's one of the greatest tag team wrestlers of all time. But like when you're advertising all your commercials that the NWO dudes are going to be there and you get like, I remember one time I went to a show and the only NWO dude we got was fucking Virgil. Soul train Jones in the house. (laughs) Versus the best NWO ever. And then the worst part was he tried to wrestle a match and it was like against Disco Inferno. So just imagine how that went. My favorite Virgil memory, like in the ring, is uh, I think Survivor Series '92. He comes out to wrestle Yokozuna, and Vince is like, "Yokozuna has never been challenged." And Virgil's shitty theme hits, and Yo- Vince is like, "Oh, but he's gonna be challenged now." <laughs> and it's like, no, he's not. And then after Yokozuna squashed him, Bobby Heenan was like doing his replays where he's drawing on it, and he's like, I think he called Yokozuna's leg the drumstick, and he's like, "There's your Thanksgiving dinner," and it was just super funny. Uh. That's good times, but when I moved on south, I um, you get the occasional WWE shows going through and stuff, and okay. like um, TNA was running. They weren't technically TNA house shows; they were UWF house shows ran by Hermie Sattler that had like TNA talent Ooh. all over them. Yeah. So um, like I remember um, me and the wife and my brother-in-law, which her little brother Zach at the time, who's not so little now because he's like twenty-three and in the fucking military and like six feet something, so it makes <laughs> me feel extra short these days. Yeah. But um, we went to that show. We actually had a really good time, and we were joking that the location that they held this—it was like Mooresville, North Carolina. The exit was perfect for an indie wrestling show because there was a Cracker Barrel, a Waffle House, a Lowe's, and a Home Depot. Wow. So it's like everything you need before, during, and after the show was right there. But I um, had a fantastic time. That was actually the night years and years ago that my wife and I, I did my first ever podcast. And we did it with a handheld video recorder. And she did nothing but bust my fucking balls half the show, which was why it became popular. Because <laughs> like we're sitting there talking and my laptop's on in the background. We're talking it on the couch in this fucking video recorder and apparently my like at the time yes i'm old my aol was on so you get the little fucking like little (laughs) notification like someone's im and me and she's like really fucking professional larry can't even turn your goddamn computer off and i'm like what what the fuck i'm like you're not supposed to bury me on my own show man but she did and everybody loved it so that's kind of how all this shit started she didn't put you over no she didn't and then like a couple years later there was a there was another, it was actually a TNA house show that was um, ran like in Keenansville, which is really small, even smaller than the town I lived in. And we ended up going there. And the biggest takeaway I had from that show was Kevin Nash being advertised and not wrestling, only taking photos. He did come out and throw a big boot, but of course he didn't do the power bomb because that's another five grand. Yeah, baby. Yeah, you got to make that money. That's right. If you ever heard the Young Buck story about uh, talking about being on a show with Kevin Nash, it's great. The dude pays Nash 5000 to come in and work a squash match. And then they're in the back, and he's talking with the Young Bucks, and the promoter comes up and like, Kev, I had this great idea. I thought after the main event, when so-and-so retains the title, you can come out and you can powerbomb him and stand tall to send the crowd home happy. And Nash goes, sure, ha-ha, for another five grand. 
<laughs> and the Bucks were like, holy shit. And then Kevin the dude Nash. like actually tried to wrangle up five grand to have him do it. Kevin Nash is the definition of work smart, not hard. Exactly. But the other He thing, understands how to make that money. But the other takeaway I had was uh, Scotty Too Hottie was on this show. And he was working like a local indie dude. And Scotty Too Hottie was the best fucking wrestler on this show. Because we were sitting ringside and everything was snug and crisp and clean. He made this dude look good. And then he danced after the match. And then his little daughter was there at the time. And I felt really old like a couple months ago when he posted a picture of him and his daughter who's like in her late teens now. Because I saw her as like a little girl getting in the ring and dancing with her dad. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of crazy looking at all those things. Um, I think a few months ago or something, uh, Dustin... Rhodes tweeted something with Dakota and she's like a full grown woman. And I remember that storyline, you know, with Marlena and him and Dakota. And I'm like, what is like, how are you already a grown person? I know it is crazy when you think about it, but bottom line is guys, seriously, as much as there is so much awesome, uh, televised slash online wrestling to watch. If you have time, go to a live show. They are so much fun. And even if you're not a big fan of quote unquote main roster WWE, I know tons of people that go to like Raw and SmackDown house shows and have a blast because it's a very different atmosphere. You have guys trying some things out. They play to the crowd more. It's just a ton of fun. Yeah. I, uh, one of the people, you know, I went went with my brother and my uh, friend, and my friend, he's always, you know, he's been a wrestling fan for, you know, since the 90s, but he's kind of fallen out of watching it recently. So when he saw like some of the people on the show, he didn't really know a lot of them because he hasn't been watching in the last few months. Um, so I asked him, I said, are you sure, you, you know, why did you even come this time if you're not really into it? And he's like, because this is always, you know, it's always fun. You can always have a good time, even if um, you don't know everything that's going on. I do want to give a quick shout out to, I don't know their names, Um or his name, but there was a kid sitting in front of us and like, we're watching him. And it's like, it's so cool to see like the joy on the kid's face watching this show. Cause it just reminds us of like what we were before we cared about, you know, who was booked to win or who's getting, who's looking strong. It's just the pure joy of watching something that you, that you really like. Like he's trying to start chants. Um, he's getting into it. He's like looking at, they did a chant that had a curse word in it. I can't remember what it was. And he like looked at his dad like, can I chant this? And his dad was like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so I don't know how much live wrestling you've ever been to, but what's like the kind of coolest thing you've seen live at a show or like gone to? Um, So just I've been to a fair amount of shows. I'll just start by just mentioning some of the shows that I've been to. Uh, first thing I ever went to, I remember it was a WWE house show in Madison Square Garden, June of 99. Uh, Austin had just become CEO and he'd be undertaker by DQ in the main event. Uh, first match I ever got to see was D'Lo and Mark Henry against Edge and Gangrel. So, um, went to a few house shows, you know, in, in the nineties, uh, went to Rory Rumble 2000 live, which was pretty dope. Um, but I didn't enjoy that as much as I wanted to because I was sitting like floor seats, but not up close. So every, and that was in the era when everyone had signs. So I had to watch like Triple H man, uh, cactus on the screen. And I'm like, I could have just done this at home. <laughs> um, I went to one ECW show at the Hammerstein Ballroom. It was a tag title tournament. Tajiri and Whitwork won the titles Ooh, at the end of the night. Yeah, that, that that was a lot of fun. I kind of wish I went the next night because that's when Kick Cash did his like famous dive into the um, like big pile of people. Um, went to a few more WWE shows, like a couple house shows, a SmackDown in 09. Oh, I went to uh, 
they did a Raw SmackDown double shot in a one the night after King of the Ring. So like right when the invasion started, I saw Mike Awesome win the hardcore title in the garden. Um, that was cool. Um, Ring of Honor went to a lot of those shows between 06 and 07 and like well, actually 06 and 09. Um, one of the coolest moments I got to experience was Homicide beating Brian Danielson for the title. Uh, just a whole bunch of, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, so it's just a whole bunch of New York guys celebrating, you know, New York Puerto Ricans celebrating with Homicide. We had the Puerto Rican flag, like, held up with him. It was real cool. Um, I saw Roderick Strong win the ROH World title from Seth Rollins on his way out. Uh, the top two, like, coolest things, though, would probably be, just because of the way I marked out for it, I had in 07, I was kind of over the Briscoes when everybody was loving them. <laughs> Uh, and I wanted them to lose the titles badly, and I became a huge Tyler Black fan. And at Final Battle 07, they won the uh, tag titles from the Briscoes in the main event, and me and my brother were like the only two people in the crowd to pop super hard. Everybody else is bad. The Briscoes lost. <laughs> um, and just this, I, um, just some of the great matches, like Morishima, Brian Danielson, when Danielson got his eye messed up, I got to see that live. Um, Nigel McGuinness, Austin Aries had one of the best matches I've ever seen when Nigel gets like his whole eye cut open. Um, yeah, just pretty much that. Uh, in terms of NXT, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, Finn Balor Cesaro was really cool to see live because I did not expect that. Um, yeah, that's why I can't really think of one specific moment. But yeah, that was a little bit of a history of shows I've been to live. That's cool, man. And again, like I said, I always tell people if you have the chance to go to live wrestling, I, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh and I actually grew up like an NWA fan, but like I had a neighbor and he had grandkids and like he would take them to the WWF house shows a lot. <clears throat> so he'd be like, hey, Larry, I got tickets. Do you want to come? And I'd be like, well, fuck yeah, I'll go to wrestling. Yeah, of course. And I remember like the first WWF house show I went to, it was uh, when the uh, Road Warriors were coming into WWF. Ooh. And I was, I'm at the Civic Arena and fucking Iron Man hits. And the roadies come out. And I'm losing my shit because I'm an NWA fan. Yeah. And I'm just, like, fucking thrilled. And, like, people are like, who are these dudes? I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. I'm like, how do you not know who the Road Warriors oh, are, man? man? They probably didn't know much about Flair when he showed up late. It was in 91, I think, when the LOD showed up. It was, like, 1991, I think. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, they, uh, I forget who the hell, they, they fucking killed some geeks. It was awesome. Just got to see a Road yeah. Warrior squash. Um, big show wise, I was at uh, SummerSlam '95, which oh, uh, nice. largely a bad show, but you had Sean and Razor in the second ladder match. So, okay, like, yeah, that, that's a classic, I and like, I always like the Hakushi one two three kit match. Yeah, that that's good, but like everything else, a lot of it's like really rough looking back. Diesel Mabel, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, a few years later, I was there for the Hell in a Cell Foley Taker match. I, oh, that's classic. I was up in the uh, the Fox Sports box because my friend's dad was friends with all the execs at Fox Sports, and he, like, worked with the Penguins and shit. So we got tickets. One of the funniest things, I remember I met Ken Shamrock backstage. Mm-hmm. That dude looked like he was fucking seven feet wide. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. It's like he, he was walking down the hallway, and, like, if he, he didn't want someone to go past, nobody would have gone past him because he took up, like, the hallway. Broadest fucking shoulders I ever saw on a dude at the time, but yeah, I, I was there for that. You know, Rock winning King of the Ring, and then Foley and Taker, and just I remember watching that. And then I went home that night, and uh, Christy had uh, 
uh, recorded it on pay-per-view at my mom's house because we were up for that. So mm-hmm. I watched it back, and I was like, you don't understand. People thought he was dead. <laughs> you know? That's a very reasonable thought. <laughs> <laughs> but I was there for that. And then the other cool thing is, is uh, we got married at the end of 99. One of my best friends bought Christy, myself, and her tickets to Raw in January. So I was yeah. like, well, that's fucking cool. So yeah, we finished class. We drive up to Pittsburgh because college was like 90 minutes away from Pittsburgh. We drive yeah. up, and it just happens to be the night that the fucking Radicals debuted. Oh, wow. And I just remember that. I was like, holy shit. I'm like, that's fucking awesome. Especially without Twitter and stuff. So it's like you get there. and Wait a minute. That's, you know, Chris Benoit and Perry Saturn and these guys in the front row. And it's like. Yeah. That's insane. Well, I remember, like at the time, like the uh, the old message boards and shit were like, ah, classic. Um, you know, like there was rumors that they were gonna leave, but obviously had no clue they were gonna be there that night. And I was like, holy, just that was fucking awesome. And I also remember in in the dark match, my wife fell in love that night uh, with Sa Rios and Amy Duma. <laughs> oh, what a free lead! <laughs> that worked out well. <laughs> that worked out well. At least you know half of that list. <laughs> Worked out well for Lita, you know. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, it's um. I remember that was like the other cool thing. Like she always remembers that because that's the first time she ever saw her. Mm-hmm. So um, but yeah, it's just, again like live wrestling is fucking awesome, guys. If if you don't have, if you haven't gone for some reason, like hit up a local indie, find one with like a dude you may have heard of on the site, go to a house show, just have a good time. It's so much fun. Yeah, um, real quick, if you don't mind continuing some of this banter, I did have a couple things sure. to add. Um, just first of all, I did forget to mention that, you know, I went to Royal Rumble 2000, uh, after I moved to, uh, Cleveland or to Ohio, I went to TLC 2014. Yes. I got to see the steel stairs match between Eric Rowan and Big Show live. I mean, Jesus, that's like, that's like a one and only time. Yeah, that's it was, shit. it was historic. And I remember my girlfriend texting me because she was watching it at home and I, she was cracking up at Damian Mizdow in one of the matches. But then she texted me because they were advertising the Steel Stairs match, and the the, the graphic said it was like two thousand pounds each steel <laughs> step. And she's like, "There's no way that that's true." Um, and then I went to um, Fastlane 2016, which was really cool for me because you know I was always a big AJ Styles fan, and I never got to see him when he was in TNA, and I got to see him work Jericho that night. Uh, so those two things were cool. And then just to add on to kind of what we were talking about, like when you said you saw Ken Shamrock, uh, how, like what wrestlers have you met like in person, whether it's an autograph or just seeing them or anything like that? Um, I, I, I met Nash at that house show just because I was like curious. Like I had to meet Kevin Nash because it's like, it's no, I, mean, I, I get you. I've met some, some interesting names too. So, yeah, but I had to meet Nash. I, I met Scotty too hotty at that show. He was like the nicest fucking dude, by the way. Yeah. Of course, so, it feels like he would be. Uh, I met uh, Angelina Love and Velvet Sky at that show. Nice. And um, backstage at the WWE, that WWF show, King of the Ring, um, we uh, I met um, Ken Shamrock backstage because he was walking down the hall. I guess he was going for a meeting. And then I indirectly met Vince McMahon. Whoa. But here, here's the best part. He barely said anything to me. I got like a hello he walks into the box and he and he, he looks over and he's like, Andy, my boy, which is my friend. Because he knew his yeah. dad. He's like, how are you, you little son of a bitch? And he's like giving him a hug. And he's just like, I'm, and I'm sitting there like, can a brother get an introduction? 
And like, you know, I'm just kind of standing there and eventually my friend's like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, Vince, this is my friend Larry. He's like, oh, nice to meet you. And like, that was it. But like, he's like giving my friend hugs and shit. And like, I'm like, what the fuck is this? Just just the idea that you know somebody who knows Vince is like just crazy. Like, I really wonder, and this is just again going a little off topic. I would love to just have like a day in the life of Vince McMahon. Like, I really wonder what he does all day. Because I feel like it, he's, he's kind of a fascinating person. Oh, definitely. But yeah, it was just, I remember going home and Christy's like, anything cool happened? I'm like, well, apparently the boy, which is what everybody called Andy the boy. I'm like, apparently the boy's fucking best friends with Vince McMahon. And she's like, what do you mean? So I'm explaining this meeting and she's like, so he said like two words. I'm like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Maybe three. You know? <laughs> he was like Larry Howard. Yeah. yeah. That's it. I got like a nice to meet you, but it was just so funny. Yeah. Vince, obviously uh, in real life, bigger than, you know, I mean, Vince, obviously giant in real shape, you know? So yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Vince was a fucking big dude. Like you didn't think necessarily expect it, but like, yeah. you know, you see him and it's like, Oh, fucking Vince is a pretty big dude. Yeah, so, like I, I saw like Shane in passing backstage and stuff like that, but like, I haven't met like a a ton. Like I've met people at, like smaller shows and stuff, like smaller name gotcha. people. But yeah, but uh, yeah, the Kevin Nash and Nash was actually really nice when he was doing his little meet and greet and stuff like that. Velvet Sky and Angelina Love were very nice, and like That's I said, cool. Vince was just like it was so weird. Just like this is fucking Vince McMahon, and he's like best friends with my like my little buddy. <laughs> what the hell was this? But it was fascinating. Um. Yeah, that sounds like it. Like, you know, I've met a lot of wrestlers, uh, but none is, I've never met a, a Vince. <laughs> um, just to give kind of a rundown, uh, when I was like five, my mom, because the thing is, my mom's a big wrestling fan. So she made sure that I would go see these things. Um, so we went to meet Bret Hart when I was like five. Um, we met Austin right before the highway to hell. Uh, and we all just stopped stood next to him and took pictures and he and my mom grabbed him for a big hug and i was like nobody else is doing that mom and she got a picture <laughs> hugging austin so because she's that's like she's loved austin for years like anytime he's coming around she's like i gotta see it austin's back um and then in like smaller like um that restaurant wwf new york oh yeah uh i went there like after i think when i got done with elementary school you know my mom said where do you want to go to eat and i picked wwf new york and as we're eating there, they're like, hey, Devon Dudley's here signing autographs. Do you want one? Like, Absolutely. Uh, so I met Devon there. I had random, you know, because they would come to New York a lot for autograph signings. So I met like Rhino and Terry. Um, when the ECW Hardcore Revolution video game came out, I was a massive Rob Van Dam fan. Uh, so we met him and Tommy Dreamer. And I got to hold RBD's TV title in a video that my, my mother recorded when I was like 10. Um I met John Morrison and The Miz, took pictures with their tag team titles right before Royal Rumble 2008. Uh, Miz said he was going to throw Great Khali over the top with one arm. He, Miz was really cool. Morrison seemed like he didn't really want to be there, but Miz was very big on interacting with everybody. Um, the most free, I met Nigel McGuinness uh, at our ROH show. And then at Comic-Con, I paid to go see, uh, take pictures and go to the Q&A with Paige, Dolph Ziggler, and Sasha Banks. I feel like there's a couple more I'm forgetting. Well, but those two are, two oh, out of three wasn't uh, bad on that last one. For sure, yeah. And it's <laughs> funny because if you go back through my Instagram or uh, Twitter, my first I met Paige, because it was Paige and Ziggler the same day. 
I met Paige and I was super excited because this is 2015. She was like just fresh, you know, to the, she was in the main roster and I was a big Paige fan. So I got this picture of her. She was super nice. And I'm like ecstatic in the photo. And then I looked at it and I was like, I look kind of cheesy. So when I met Dolph, I try to look the complete opposite. So it looks like I don't want to meet Dolph, even though I'm wearing a Dolph shirt. <laughs> um, so that that's really good. And then uh, when they were doing autographs, right, he autographed the picture we took together. So it goes to Paige and she looks at the picture he autographs and then draws like devil ears on him and stuff. I'm like, this is my collection. Like, this is my autograph. You just draw devil ears on Dolph. I mean, I don't care. It was funny. Um, Sasha was really cool when I met her. Um, but yeah, the, those were the, 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 uh, those stand out. The Comic Con ones were a lot of fun. The other one I almost forgot about was in early 2000 when I mistakenly got the idea, and it was his fault that I should try indie wrestling. Was um, <laughs> I met I met Ivan Koloff at this small small show, and um, Christ, we lived in Warsaw, so this was like it was like Roseboro, North Carolina. Really mm-hmm. small fucking podunk town, and there was an indie show there, and like I didn't, there was like no real names advertised, and there was nobody really on that show important, but Ivan Koloff was on the show. Yeah, got to meet him and his wife, the nicest fucking gentleman in the world. And I sat there and I talked to him, and like he, like people would come up to him, and he'd be like, "Oh, well, where do you remember me from?" And people were like, "Uh." <laughs> and like they wouldn't know and so like I'm like I'm waiting I'm like please ask me and I'm like I'm getting a Polaroid and he goes he's like what do you remember about my career I'm like well besides you like winning you know beating Bruno I remember the stuff with the Rock and Roll Express and I started talking to him he's like oh really he's like holy shit and he's like you know he's like this is nice like people actually know you know yeah. and I sat there and talked to him and he was the nicest fucking dude and he was like you know, I know a guy that trains people. He's like, you have decent size. He's like, you could you know, maybe do this if you're a big fan. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, and so I'm sitting there and like my wife's like, oh, like yeah, don't kill yourself. But he, but he was like the nicest fucking dude. And it's so weird because it's like you get so used to seeing somebody. And of course you go up to him and you're expecting the big Russian accent. Yeah. No, he's just a dude. You know, he's just sitting there talking to him. And then, like, ten minutes later, he's doing push-ups, he gets in the ring, and he starts cutting the Russian promo then. You know, and it's just like... This is like it's like tri- he flipped the switch. Yeah, it's like tripping me out, but it was like the coolest fucking thing. Probably the... the Along with Scotty Too Hotty, possibly the nicest person I ever met in wrestling, though. Just, he was just like... He was like humble Uncle Ivan, just like chatting me up, and, you know, happy that people remembered the NWA stuff, and... Yeah, he was fucking super nice, dude. But yeah, it's again like you know, Kevin and I were just we're kind of going on, but live wrestling, guys, it is so much fun. Yeah, and like you, even when I go to like even TLC twenty fourteen that I went to, that's a rough show, guys. Don't watch it back on the network. Like <laughs> Ryback versus Kane, uh, it's it's not good. Um, other than the ladder match, uh, but even so, like I had a good time. You're there with usually, you know, you're there with people, and even if the show's not great, you're like, I'm just gonna have a good time here. That's right. So seriously, I I can't uh, state enough about going to indie wrestling shows or live events and stuff. Just go have a good time. Go with someone that likes wrestling, like Kevin said, and just have a good time because it's it's some of the best part about being a wrestling fan that I don't think enough people get into. Like a lot of people are just content to like watch on TV and stuff, and that's great if you're having a good time. But like sometimes the live event stuff is just it's so different, such a good time, but. 
Speaking of events, Kev, we have to talk about <laughs> WWE Elimination Chamber 2020. Yeah. And we started off our pre-show with the Viking Raiders facing off with Zack Ryder and Kurt Hawkins. Now, I know some of you may not realize this, but both of these people are actually former tag team champions. I know people <laughs> forget in the case of Ryder and Hawkins. They had a short match. The Viking Raiders won at 430 with Thor's Hammer. And listen, it was short, but I thought it was a perfectly solid and clean little pre-show match with the right team winning. Yeah, I mean, you know, I my whole thing when I first saw it was like, why is this on TV? You know, it's it wasn't bad. Like they didn't botch anything. It wasn't anything. It didn't go too long. I think it went like four and a half minutes yep. or so. Um, so yeah, they got in, they got out. It's just it feels weird because I always like like I've seen people online complain when I think AJ Styles and Cedric Alexander were the kickoff match or something, and it's like I always thought. I would put something good on the kickoff match because you want to entice people to buy the show. And, you know, I feel like a match like age or Humberto Andrade would do that. Um, this never did that for me. This is like something I could have seen on raw, but like you said, it did what it needed to. It was an easy win for the Viking Raiders. I just, I didn't think it needed to be on the show. They could have thrown, I don't know, something else on the kickoff show. Like what's Mustafa Ali been doing for the past few months. Apparently he's hacking SmackDown. If you believe rumors, I don't know. Oh yeah, that that the logo does the thing that pops up does kind of look like him. So or his, you know, the mask or whatever. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's like I I would have been fine. They could have easily just done this on Raw. I kind of agree. Something like Andrade and Humberto or Drew and Brian probably w- would have worked a lot better in terms of actually getting interest. But yeah. I mean, again, it, I'll I'll put it this way: it's not bad, so I didn't hate it. So, I Agreed. mean, it's perfectly solid, and it gives the Viking Raiders a win, considering they lost at uh, Super Showdown for reasons. So Yeah. Uh, but our main show started off, which I just mentioned, Daniel Bryan and Drew Gulak, uh, Kevin. Daniel Bryan defeated Drew Gulak 14-25 via submission. What did you think of this opener? I absolutely love this match. Like, it's one of, or might be even, like, my favorite, I don't know, like top five favorite of the year. Not best, but favorite. Uh, this was everything that I want in a match like this. Uh, Drew Gulak came in as a guy who, granted, he killed it on 205 Live, but since he got to the SmackDown, he hasn't done anything except, like, I think Braun beat him up a few times. Yeah. Um, Brian went out there and, like, he tried to look like he was going out of his way to make sure Gulak looked like a beast. Um, I really like the fact that it played off the storyline, or at least the minimal storyline that they had, where Gulak keeps saying, oh, Brian has these holes in his game and how to fix them, and then he goes out and has a counter for everything Brian's doing. Just everything, they, like, he just was one step ahead of this guy who's been world champion multiple times, <clears throat> and Gulak looked incredible. Um, everything that he did looked smooth. It was just so good. Um, thought Daniel Bryan might have died when he took that German suplex. Um, and then the reverse suplex off the top into the Dragon Sleeper and then into the Yes Lock. Just, I can't rave enough about this match. Uh, I saw your rating on your review. I'm going to go slightly higher, uh, but yeah, just phenomenal. I loved everything about this. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Like you said, Brian definitely, like I said in my preview, this felt like, you know, Daniel Bryan is pretty much, I think, resigned to what he's going to be in WWE at this point. He's collecting a paycheck, but he feels like he's going to try to do stuff and work with people he wants to work with. And yeah. he picked Drew Gulak because he loves Drew Gulak. They, you know, they're friends. He has, respects him a lot. 
thought it was yeah. just really good and, and like at times very basic in its execution, but that's why it thrived because as you mentioned, the story going in where Gulag kind of mentioned he, he kept seeing holes in Brian's game. And but in also in its basic execution, I also thought that they like kind of some masterful work in parts that just played yeah. off of that feud extremely well. And also at times it had that great feeling to where it kind of feels like a fight and because, like, when you get grapple-heavy matches, unfortunately, they can also feel like high-spot matches to where it feels like a highly choreographed grappling session in the gym instead of, like, a fight. And yeah, I watched Timothy Thatcher in 2016, too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, th- this felt, like, like gritty at times. Like, they were really fighting for position. A really strong way to kick off the show. And I think also the thing that is going to make the match stick out is the fact that it was just so different stylistically than anything else we were going to see and anything else we did in fact see on this show because yep. nobody works that kind of style like these two guys. And I think when you have matches like that and like the next match is also a very different match. I mean, that's why a match like that sticks out and thrives because you need to mix it up. We, we talk about it when we review anything, why certain things work and like why you position matches in certain places. And this one just, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I look at this, and this was definitely my match of the show. I I, I love this. I mean, I, again, I might not have gone as high as maybe you or other people, but I mean, I really enjoyed it, and it's. I don't think you can ask for any more out of Brian and Gulak than like the kind of match they gave you, and it's what, like you said, it's kind of what you wanted. It's what I wanted as well. Absolutely. Um, and you know, it was a case where I mentioned it on the just a little preview of the NXT arrival uh, review we did. I mentioned that sometimes you want your opener, you know, it has to be. You really want it to be good, but you don't want them to overdo things. And the fact that this was, as you said, kind of basic in its execution meant that people could still do big spots later and not feel overwhelmed by what they, you know, saw in the opener. Um, so yeah, just. Tremendous stuff. But the funny thing is, is for as basic as it was at times, the execution and everything they did just made it better for me than everything else. It was absolutely. It's funny how that works sometimes because we 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 can talk about like I I love you I love flippity doos and super kicks, but I also Mm -hmm. love like Shingo and Ishii just pummeling each other for twenty five minutes. And sometimes I just love, you know, it doesn't even have to be anything hard hitting or, you know, big spots or uh, one of my favorite matches in, I believe it was 2017 or 18, uh, Velveteen Dream, Aleister Black at War Games. Like, if you go back and watch that match, they didn't really do any major spots or anything, but they told a great story, played off their character stuff well, and it worked, like, incredibly well. Exactly. But, yeah, you, again, you like you said, you look back at that match theoretically and in all technical terms, there is nothing spectacular about it in terms of the world, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's a really good match enhanced by an excellent story going in. And it just all, it all jives together. So mm-hmm. yeah. And this is funny how stuff like that works. And, you know, we talk about style changes, which sets us up great for this next match, which was yeah. Andrade <laughs> defending the U S title against Alberto Carrillo. Selena Vega, obviously, at ringside. Uh, she was not a factor in this, actually, at all. Um, they did a little work on the floor, like she teased pulling out the pads, but they never actually, like, she didn't do any Ronas off the apron mm-hmm. or anything. Yeah. No big distraction spots. Uh, the end saw Andrade retained at uh, about 12 and a half minutes after they traded a bunch of cradles, and he stole it by pulling the tights. And I thought this was, it was really good and fun. Again, it plays off of their established rivalry coming into this, where... Andrade is just kind of a piece of shit to keep stealing wins on everybody. 
And Humberto, for as good as he ends up looking, just can't beat this dude yet. Yeah, and um, like you said, really good match. Um, Sorry, uh, while Zelina may not have been a physical factor, I do appreciate that even in a case where she's not doing anything like that, I do see, you know, I can clearly see what she adds to the match. Like every time the camera cuts her, I think we mentioned it before, she's always got the perfect facial expression for whatever's happening. And, you know, it's one of those things where she's pulling up the ring, uh, the the mat, and it's just the little things that the referees will get distracted by. She just, she's incredible at what she does. Um, <clears throat> as for the in-ring stuff, I mean, Andrade and Humberto are not going to have a bad match. I don't think it's possible for the two of them. Um just I like that how intense it started. Like Andrade came out of the blocks with that elbow, and I tweeted that I see that elbow, and that's why I can't take the Judas effect seriously. <laughs> like it, it looks so bad compared to like Andrade just wrecking people with his elbow. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, you know I like that. Like I said, it felt like these two guys have tried to hurt each other before, so they managed to have a match that felt intense, but also did you know some of the acrobatic stuff that we're used to. Uh, I like the tease of the. I really like how the feud has been built around them using the exposed concrete. That's such an old school spot that I miss. Um, just like when people do the abdominal stretch and like they hold the ropes for leverage or something. Just little heel things like that uh, are really cool. Um, the finish feels like something that, as you said, they've been kind of doing that with Andrade, and it is a little tired at this point, but it does seem like they're going the way you suggested. Andrade, Ray, Humberto, and. Um, Garza maybe at Mania for the U.S. title, so you have to keep Carrillo, you know, where he has a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, kind of like a valid like complaining out that he's yeah, like he has a beat. Yeah, he has an argument for why he should get another title shot. Yeah, but again, an enjoyable match, and again, I enjoyed the contrast between the first two matches, and we were Very we, much so. we were off to a really good start so far. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So we had uh, AJ Styles cut a quick promo backstage talking about his match with Aleister Black. Made fun of Aleister Black for sitting by himself in a little room, listening to creepy music while sitting all crisscross applesauce. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking died. I don't know why that popped me. It's probably because I have, like, kids, and I had to hear that for, like, years. But, oh, God, I remember one of the first days, real quick offside, that one of the first days that I substitute taught, and I I sat there and I I told the kids, yeah, sit down Indian style. And the, the assistant in the classroom came up like, we don't say Indian style anymore. It's derogatory towards Native Americans. It's crisscross <laughs> applesauce. And I'm like, what? I'm like, okay. All right. Yes. Applesauce. So that was the first time I learned about that, like in 2000, 2001. It was like the weirdest thing. But I don't know why AJ made me laugh with that. That must have been where they got bliss cross applesauce from. I guess so. But we moved on to our first Elimination Chamber match for the SmackDown Tag Team Championships. Miz and Morrison defending against the Usos, Robert Roode and Dolph Ziggler, Heavy Machinery and Lucha House Party and the New Day. At the end of the day, our champions retained in 33 minutes via Pandas. The champions countered into a roll-up, plus they were using the ropes and like both of them were pinning an Uso. And uh, <laughs> so they kind of, they survived and they, they stole the win. Again, another finish that will possibly set up a rematch down the line. Uh, anyway, 33 minutes, champions retain. Kev, uh, what did you think of our first chamber match of the night? Um, I thought it was a good match. It uh, never quite like hit being great. For me, there was some awkwardness. Uh, just to point some highlights out or even some lowlights, um, Otis dancing to New Day's theme in his pod. That was the highlight right Unbelievable. There. 
Yes, absolutely. Unbelievable. Like, I just, my friend texted me as it happened. It was like, why is it Otis world champion right now? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, you know, that, anything Otis does right now, it's kind of gold. Um, I like the New Day and the Uso starting the match. It's something we've seen before, but they always deliver. And it, it was a nice little way to renew their rivalry without giving us a whole nother, uh, you know, match between them. Um, the Lucha House Party, I was like, why are they in this match? And then they said, we're going to be the Flippy Boys of the match. Uh, you need those guys in there. Lindsay's shooting star press, like off the top of the chamber, was nuts. Um, it did seem like they missed the cue somewhere. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, Lindsay was climbing one of the pods, and then for some reason, Otis and Tucker were just standing around, and yeah. the camera never moved to Lindsay. And I'm like, this is going awkwardly. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, that was definitely weird. I liked. Miz and Morrison coming in when everybody was down and doing their thing. Otis, the, the back-to-back spots of Tucker's somersault off the pod, Otis going through the, like, that was insane, Otis going through the, the pod. We've seen people go through just the glass, but the fact that he went all the way outside the ring was, I was not expecting that. Yeah, the, the big man took a big bump to the floor. They were going through the pod, for yeah. sure. Took the biggest of the bumps. Um you know, they they left the main three teams for the end. I would like to see a prolonged Miz and Morrison Usos program. Uh, the finish was fine. It just felt a little weird doing it right after we had the pulling of the tights. Uh, Andrade win. Um, so, yeah, like I said, good chamber, not great. It felt like it dragged at some points. 33 minutes might have been a little much. Um, but, yeah, like I said, good. I enjoyed it. Just not great. Yeah, I definitely agree. A, a little slow and disjointed in the middle, which he brought up the uh, the Lince climb spot, and like Otis mm-hmm. seemed like really confused at one point. Like, yeah. what is going on? What are we supposed to do? I thought I thought it was like really good. I thought it was a fun chamber match. I agree with you. Maybe mm-hmm. a little too long. The good thing though is they obviously continued the Dolph Otis thing out of this as well. And, oh, and yeah, Otis sure. is going to have to wait for his revenge for another day because it wasn't happening tonight. He kind of got screwed by Dolph and Rude again, and um. So that'll go on. Yeah, I, I love the Otis stuff. He is this. Here's the thing why people are like, whoa, it's just Otis. It's like, well, he got over. It's, yeah. it's like that's kind of the name of the game. And I mean, I think everybody thought that when they got called up, it was going to be like two months and Otis is going to be nothing but a comedy dude yeah. at best. But he's gotten over. And the story with Mandy and Dolph, I mean, there's actually like legit sympathy for him. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's one of those things where um, it was, uh, you know, a case where, you know, like you said, he got called up and everybody thought, oh, this is another No Way Jose. I got to be on main event. And, you know, you see a lot of people complain that some people, some wrestlers from NXT don't get the push that they deserve. And then there's some who, uh, you know, like Heavy Machinery, they never, you know, some, I feel like Sanity members, some of them complained. I remember on Twitter that they weren't being used. Then you got Heavy Machinery, never complain, constantly getting put on TV and making the most of it. And people like that, uh, Elias does it a lot too, and make the most of their opportunity. Yeah, and that's the thing. And the the thing is, is like, you know, we've seen between like some of the NXT stuff and some of the SmackDown stuff, it's like, they're actually a lot better team than most people give them credit for. Yes. Because not only is Otis like tremendously fun, but Tucker's actually really good at times. Like he's that he, dive he did was nuts. Yeah, he's a lot more athletic than people think, and overall, he just he brings a lot of good stuff. They mix in some of the amateur stuff, and he's just when Tucker decides he's going to go, kind of like Tucker in a way is kind of like Brody King to me, to where mm-hmm. he's like he does kind of like Big Lad Lucha a little bit 
at yeah. times, and it's just like you don't necessarily expect it, but it's really cool and good when he does it. So yeah. I mean, I, I I dig that, and just like again, Otis is fucking over, man. I mean, he's way over in a way that like not a lot of people on SmackDown are right now. Exactly, and we got a backstage interview with Natalia, who was talking about Beth Phoenix and the Randy Orton thing, and she was talking about how she was going to unleash her legacy in the chamber. And all, <laughs> all I wrote was what horrible fucking verbiage. No real person talks this way. Yeah. And it's like, you know, your best friend, you know, we talked about, they were talking about that penis getting attacked. Your best friend gets attacked. And your first thought is, well, I got to let people know that I'm a heart, which is her entire character. and has been for like a decade. We get it. You're related to her heart. Next up on our show, we had the no disqualification match, Aleister Black versus AJ Styles. It was obviously, again, no disqualification. The Good Brothers are at ringside, and again, not like I wanted it to happen, but if it's no DQ, why didn't they just get in the ring and kick the shit out of them? Absolutely. I was thinking the same thing. If this was the route you were going to go where uh, you wanted it to be a one-on-one no DQ match, which is a fine idea, do it where it's no DQ, but the only rule is the OC barred from ringside, you know? Yeah, and then the other thing that like kind of upset me at the beginning, besides that, was Aleister Black was so upset from getting his ass beat on Raw and losing his first singles match that they worked like a basic back-and-forth grappling beginning. Yeah, it's the exact opposite of what uh, I said about Humberto Andrade, where they came out like aggressive because they have a reason to, you know? this They had a reason to, and they just didn't do it. Um what would have been cool was you know, Alistair maybe like finds a way to black mask both Anderson and Gallows to neutralize them, and then they could run in later for however the finish went. Um, but yeah, it just there wasn't a sense of urgency to this. Yeah. So at the end of the day, Alistair Black, after the Undertaker's dong hit and he took out uh, the OC <laughs> and choke slammed AJ, allowing Black to hit Black Mask for the win. He wanted twenty three ten via pin. First of all. Gotta throw this out. My Undertaker Aleister Black versus DOC WrestleMania theory is looking even better these days. Yeah, and my friend said he doesn't want a handicap match, and I just tweeted him, that's gotta be Kane. Like, <laughs> six-man tag. Yeah, because in all, in all honesty, when I look at it, the, the booking for a straight-up AJ Taker match just makes no sense to me now. He fucking destroyed him at Super Showdown. He destroyed him again here. Why, w- yeah. why would I want to see AJ and Taker in a singles match? Especially in 2020. Yeah, we saw we saw Undertaker last time he had a singles match. So uh, at the end of the day, I, I thought this was, I thought the match was a little too long. I thought the middle was kind of a slog to get through, mm-hmm. and I thought it was kind of solid but unspectacular. And you know, I hate to say this because it's been hard to accept because I fucking love AJ Styles. He's been one of my favorites for a super long time, mm-hmm. but his run of kind of solid but heatless pay-per-view matches continued here. Like, the last great AJ Styles match, unless there's something I forgot, Kev, was that Seth Rollins pay-per-view match. That absolutely was, and if you want to go back, and that, like, ended a streak of him giving us disappointing matches. I think before that, you have to go back to, I don't even remember a 2018 title defense that he had that was great. Like, maybe, honestly, before the Seth match, his best match might have been the Clash of Champions one with Jinder. Like, you know, because all his Nakamura matches were good, but again, disappointing. Uh, you know, the Joe feud for me never made it, you know, was never as good as I wanted it to be. Um, oh, no, he had the Daniel Bryan match at TLC when he, uh, that was really good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's just been, and 
like uh, the way the match started, there's no sense of urgency to AJ's work. It's like he's hit a point where he's like, with my eyes closed, I can get the two, two and a half to three star special, you know? So why put in all the effort? Yeah, and I guess like closing my last thought is like, surely they could have accomplished this in half the damn time. Absolutely. I do think they have some cool ideas. Like uh, I liked AJ, how he was wrenching back on the calf crusher. Like that looked really cool. Um, Alistair's meteor through the table. Uh, was great. AJ, mm, may, yeah. AJ may have hit the best looking fucking Ushiguroshi I've seen in years. By the way, yeah, he like yeah, he, he looked did. like he killed Alistair Black with that. But yeah, I mean, again, this this is far from a bad match. I don't want people to think mm-hmm. I'm saying it's bad because I know some people are like, oh, Larry fucking hates AJ now because he's in WWE. <laughs> no, it's just like Kevin said. I agree. AJ's to a point that he's fucking like forty. He's had a ton of years on him. He's had a lot of injuries. He, the, he's already said this is his last contract, and I think he's just to a point that, like, I'm not going to stink up the joint. I'm going to go out there, try to have a gentleman's three, and just every uh-huh. once in a while I'll have a flash here and there where people remember why I'm really good. And like you said, there were good parts. Meteor at the table was well done. The uh, Some of the leg work from AJ I thought was really nice and the calf killer as well. I enjoyed it. Again, it's just... There wasn't a lot of heat to it because everybody was waiting for the Good Brothers to attack, and mm-hmm. they did, and then The Undertaker appeared, and so it'll be interesting yeah. to see if they go with a handicap match or maybe a six-man, like I said, if they had Kanan or something. I just, I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can or you should do AJ and Taker in a singles match. I just think that's that's asking for a, a bad night at the office. Agreed, yeah, and I think this would be a cool thing for Alistair. Uh, you know, maybe Undertaker's like, all right, you'll be the new spooky guy around here. Yeah, and I think that should kind of be the point of it. Because like, you, yeah. you can fucking pin Luke Gallows. Nobody's going to give a shit. Put Aleister Black yeah. over and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we keep saying, like, it should have, you know, when I look back, Undertaker should have ended it at, at, against Roman when he left his uh, hat and everything in the ring. But you got to think about it. Saudi Arabia keeps calling with those $2 million checks. He's going to keep going. Yeah, and again, I'm not going to knock a brother for taking a million-dollar payday. No, for, I get it, I get for it. For working like 10 minutes, and that's probably yeah. with entrance. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to dog on him for it. But, yeah, and like when I talked to Mark Radlich when we reviewed Super Showdown, his big thing was um, he loves Undertaker, but he was like, I really wish that he were to retire after that last Triple H match when him, Triple H, and Sean all posed. Sure. He's yeah, like, that a... was like the end of the air. And he's like, I was kind of happy with that. He was like, go off into the sunset. Everybody's going to be happy and remember you. And he's like, you know, and then he came back and we obviously got like, they had that bad match with DX at that one show. And then Oof. they, oh, uh, what a fucking the, the Goldberg match where they almost killed each other. And yeah, just rough, rough stuff, man, unfortunately. So, and again, I love Taker and I love AJ, but it's just at a point that a, a mania singles match between them going any like decent amount of length kind of has bad idea written all over it. Agreed. And like for also for as much as respect as Taker has, and it's not like you're burying technically a young star because AJ is like forty. I don't <laughs> I don't want to see them go like two minutes and him at like hit a choke slam and tombstone and pin AJ either. Yeah, it worked. Uh, he did that already in Saudi Arabia. So. Next up, we go to the Raw Tag Team Championship match. We had the champions, the Street Profits, defeating Seth Rollins and Buddy Murphy. Or, not Buddy Murphy anymore, whatever. 18-25 <laughs> via pin. What did you think of our Raw Tag Team title match? 
I think Buddy Murphy, they need to decide what they want to do with his name. He's had it changed so many times. They give it back, they take it away. Um, but the matches of, if, to me, was like every, you know, the match they had in Saudi Arabia and the match on Raw. Quality tag team wrestling. It didn't blow me away. It wasn't groundbreaking stuff, but these four guys know how to put on an entertaining match. I did miss a bit of the beginning. I was doing something. I was getting some food downstairs. <clears throat> um, but I came back around the time Montez Ford put on Dawkins' headband and did a dive. Uh, I like the Viking Raiders coming out to fight AOP. I don't know where they're going with that, if that's ever going to be a match that we see, because they keep teasing it. Um, and I want to see some big, meaty men slapping meat. There you go. <laughs> um, and, you know, the Kevin Owens interaction was just the right amount. Like, he didn't interfere or anything. Uh, yeah, just, like I said, good, you know, another, like, three-star match, three, three, three and a quarter, something like that. Just very good, uh, <clears throat> good tag match. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a good match. I didn't think they went too long because I thought they had a lot of good moving parts in there. Like you said, Ford firing up with the Dawkins headband, hitting the dive, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Good good babyface fire again from the Street Profits. Again, it's good. Unfortunately for me, I think my big problem with it was, and I don't take anything away from the match, obviously, good match, but it did far more to advance Kevin Owens and Seth Rollins than establishing the Street Profits as a deserving yeah. tag team champions because... They won the titles on Raw with help from Kevin Owens. And then, like, essentially they won with help again because Kevin Owens distracted everybody and allowing them to take him out. So it's like, Uh I get that you're building to Kevin Owens and Seth Rollins, but you could have done something after the match. I I agree. I liked um, the uh, Viking Raiders taking out AOP. And, again, you could be possibly doing a match with them, too. You could end up with a triple threat maybe with the Street Profits. Who knows? But yeah. I just, I kind of, like, I want the Street Profits to start picking up some clean wins. They're baby faces. The fans yeah. seem to be into them winning the titles. Don't kind of pigeonhole them as they're lucky to have the titles because of Kevin Owens. Yeah. Give them some notable wins going forward. Like, have them go over the greatest tag team in the world or whatever, the OC. There you go. <laughs> but, yeah, I get exactly what you're saying. It was more about, you know, that's been an issue I've heard often about the, uh, um, the pay-per-views in between Royal Rumble and WrestleMania is that a lot of it's just setting up WrestleMania. Like, when I went to Fastlane 2016, it felt like it was just a three-hour commercial for WrestleMania 32, and you get that a lot. Yeah, and obviously we're not knocking them for setting up Mania because you have to set up your Mania programs to get everything going, but you also have to keep some perspective on, like, Seth Rollins is a guy. He's the ma- he's a, one of their guys. He's a made dude. And Kevin Owens is always over. So they don't need a lot. You could have done something after the match, and you got four weeks of Raw to continue telling that story. Yeah, you could have just not had Kevin Owens show up or just have him walk and you know sit down and watch it from the crowd. It doesn't have to be a distraction kind of thing. Yeah. So post-match, Kevin Owens stunned Seth Rollins, and he stood tall with his giant box popcorn. Yep. He was very happy. That led to another title match, our Intercontinental title match, handicap match, champion Braun Strowman versus Cesaro, Shinsuke Nakamura, Sami Zayn and Sami had promised that he was going to face off with Braun, you know, by himself. And he wanted his pals to stay on the apron, which of course, you know, never happened because Sami is a douchey little slimy heel and he would uh, face off with Braun. He would run away. He would let his minions do the work. He would sneak in and get some attacks in and run away every time Braun fired up. It broke down into every Braun Strowman match. He got posted. He ran over people on the floor and then he was, um, Taken out by Kinshasa against the post after it was posted. And then they did the Kinsh- uh, the uh, Haluva double suplex spot. 
And Sami Zayn defeated Braun Strowman at eight and a half minutes to pick up the Intercontinental Championship, ending Braun Strowman's epic Intercontinental title run. <laughs> so it's like it was like it wasn't horrible. I wouldn't call it bad. There was enough moving parts, but like number one, I'm kind of like, why do all of Braun's matches break down into the exact same thing? And I know people are going to be like, well, Bret Hart had his moves, Larry, and you don't yeah. think Bret Hart's bad. But I can only see Braun running people over on the floor so many times and then running into the post like an idiot so many times. Yeah, it's like there's never a variation on it, you know? <laughs> it's like it always ends pretty much the same way. Or he does something dumb where, like you saw, he ran after he went after uh, Sammy under the ring. And it's like... He got his he, ass kicked. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm with you on this. It wasn't bad. It was kind of as, uh, about as good as you can get because three-on-one matches, I mean, has there ever been a good one? I mean, not really. Handicap matches are really tough to make good. Yeah, like, and the three-on-one for me is, like, a little more difficult. I think you can do well with a two-on-one. Look at uh, Darby Allen yeah. on Dynamite last week, uh, you know, because that fight from behind. But when it's three, it feels like a little too much. Uh, luckily, Zayn, Cesaro, and Nakamura know what they're doing. And they made this work. I love Sammy. The idea that Sammy was stu- uh, in Braun's head, so Braun was too focused on him and not focused on the title. Um, it was kind of exactly what it needed to be. I think it's funny that we were literally just talking about how good Sammy Zayn is as a wrestler, and we forget about it because he hasn't wrestled. And then today, uh, tonight he wrestles and wins the Intercontinental title. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm guessing that one of two things happen. Either Braun brings back Nicholas for revenge at WrestleMania. Oh, this the, that's crazy. Or he's just going to fucking like kill Sammy in 10 seconds and win the title back. Either way, I could see it <laughs> happening. Um, the idea that he brings back Nicholas against Cesaro again. <laughs> that would be funny. And I guess the biggest takeaway from this match is that in shocking news, the team with an advantage actually won a handicap match in WWE. That, like, never happens, except back in, like, the uh, the days of um, the McMahon-Helmsley era where DX would beat somebody every week or something, or the Dudleys would beat the Rock at the table match or something. But, yeah, it's been a long time. So we close our show. The women got the main event, the women's uh, number one uh, championship, or women's number one contender elimination chamber match. Shayna Baszler, Ruby Riot, Natalia, Sarah Logan, Liv, Mor- Liv Morgan, and Asuka, excuse me. At the end of the day, this was a brisk 21-minute win for Shayna Baszler because she fucking wrecked everybody, Kev. What did you think? It was pretty amazing to watch. Uh, at, so just beforehand, um, I had tweeted that, or I was going to tweet that I really wanted Ruby and Liv to start the match. And then when I got, when I realized Natalia was going to start the match, I was like, why are they doing this to me? Um, and then I really want to see the Riot Squad interact. So when Shayna came out uh, out of the pod four, I was surprised. I thought that was going to be Liv. And then Shayna was going to go on her spree. Nope, Shayna wrecked everybody. She eliminated, she choked out Sarah Logan and Ruby Riot in, what, like 15 seconds? Yeah. And there was like a 90-second the... spree where she eliminated three people. Yeah, but the only read, like 80 of those seconds were her slamming the pod door on Natalia. Well, Natalia deserved <laughs> like, that. That's fair. Yeah, it was very, very much so. Um, the only problem that I had, because I know people complained about it. I saw there, like, what was the point of this match? Sometimes it's cool to do this. We talked about it at the Royal Rumble. You know, Brock dominated the Rumble. It's not, not something we've seen before. you got to do this because we've seen these matches so many times. You have to throw new variations on it. This was an excellent way to make Shayna look like a killer. The only real problem that I had with it was that just, 
you know, forego the idea of the pods opening at a certain time. Once Shane is in there alone, just send someone new. And she had to stand there and have Oscar yell at I couldn't watch Oscar yell at people all day. Um, but yeah, like she just stood there yelling at her. It was led to some awkward moments. Um, Oscar put up the best fight. I like the Oscar lock tease, but I don't think anybody thought Oscar was going to win. They just did Oscar Becky at Royal Rumble. So Shayna winning felt like a foregone conclusion. And then you do it this way and it gives people something to talk about. I do kind of wish Becky would have sold like some surprise a little more when they showed her watching it. I know her thing has been she's overconfident and cocky, but uh, my friend pointed out the fact that the last person to really rattle her was Oscar. And then to see Shayna handily be Oscar might have, you know, made her reconsider like maybe I can't beat the Shayna Baszler girl. Yeah, um, I I largely agree with everything you said. I didn't mind the pod stuff. I, I agree with the argument that they kind of just should have let people in. But I think the only major problem I had with this match is you spent weeks building up the whole Riot Squad thing. Yeah. And then they had, like, no interaction in this match. And I was, like, I was actually, that was, like, one of the stories I was looking forward to. And I agree, like, maybe Liv and Ruby should have started, Sarah comes in next. And then, like you said, just have Shayna come in fourth and start wrecking people. I kind of wish I would have done that. I, I liked the match. I thought it was good. I agree with you that you need to break up the uh, the, the status quo and the formula of these matches. So in terms of the yeah. booking, I thought that was absolutely great in presenting Shayna as a killer heading into Mania. And with how she was booked here and how Becky's been overknowingly a comp, uh, overconfident, I want fucking Shayna to go clubber lang on her at Mania and destroy her. Yes. Give me the Rocky Three story. Shayna fucking wrecks her in like 90 seconds. And then you have to build the Becky Redemption arc. And you can build the, like the SummerSlam rematch or whatever you want to do. But I just, I that's what I would do. Because Becky has been really annoying lately in her overconfidence. Agreed. And I think Shayna just coming in here giving no fucks, letting Oscar talk all her shit and wrecking everybody. I just like the, the best comparison I could have made was like the whole clever Lang thing from Rocky three. No, absolutely. It looks, uh, it goes back to me too, with a similar, um, concept, uh, Okada. When I first started watching new Japan, uh, wrestle kingdom nine, you know, it was supposed to be his crowning achievement. And then Tanahashi beats him and he crashed to the back. And it's like, why did that just happen? But then they built him up to get back to the title and then to beat Tanahashi. And, you know, for me, like I've said, I think they do the redemption arc a little too often. They go to that well often, but WWE almost never does it. Um, and I think that would be a really fresh way to go with Becky. You know, she got, she was rattled by Asuka, gets overconfident to the point where, like you said, she's been very annoying. And like her Twitter stuff even isn't as good as it was. You know, have Shayna come in and rattle her completely. Like, Becky feels untouchable, and then Shayna just wrecks her, and it's like, I need to go back to the drawing board. Um, and then build her back up that way until she possibly eventually dethrones Shayna or goes through Ronda or something like that. Yeah. So, I, I just, I think you can, I think you can tell a good story with that, and I hope they do because it just makes sense. And I've said before, too, the other thing is, is like, I hate to kind of harp on it because Shayna is good, but the other thing is she's not getting any younger. I think Agreed. I think if you're going to do stuff with Shayna, you need to get the most out of her while you can. Because unfortunately, you know she's heading towards forty, not getting any younger. I think she's very good. I think she's yeah. done some great stuff at times, but I just um I think you can't fuck around with her anymore. 
It took him long enough to get her up to the main roster, and I think that if you're going to do it, you got to kind of pull the trigger, man. No, yeah, I'm 100. Uh, you know, with that idea, I said it. I want to say like a year or two ago, I was I was shade up. I noticed how old, you know, not that she's old, but I noticed that she's, like you said, nearing 40. And it's like, that's not the age that we often see wrestlers go into, um, at least still at a high level. Well, especially WWE uh, in terms of women. Yeah, I always go back to Trish. She retired at 31. You know, like, that's insane. Natalia seems like she's been around forever. And she's, I think, a year younger than Shayna. And we're still waiting for Natalia to retire, so... <laughs> She follows me on Twitter. I'm not going to be mean oh, to her. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, like you said, it's you kind of have to. It's time with Shayna. Whether you're gonna, what is it, shit or get off the bot? Like it's gonna happen. You got to do it now or never. Yeah, because the other thing is too is I think if you build her up like this and then she just loses at Mania, it's like come on. Yeah, yep, it'll be very. Go ahead. I was just gonna say I th- I would find it very disappointing because I think. If the goal is to like you know make stars for however, however long you can make a star and try to make money with people, it, you, you got to do it now with Shayna because it's there's a lot of miles on Shayna is more my concern than her age. She had yeah. the MMA career and again that's not pro wrestling. She was taking like you know like poundings and shit and she has yeah. all the years of catch wrestling with it. So you don't know how much longer she's gonna go in. You don't know if she can blow out a knee in the next six months. Uh-huh. So it's just my concern is just you know jump on it while you have the chance get what you can get out of Shayna and then you know eventually you move on. I think it's awesome that she eventually got into wrestling that late. I thought she was going to be horrible because I remember the WrestleMania weekend where she debuted at Shimmer and cut like the dog shit worst promo, and I was <laughs> like, oh Christ! I'm like, this is not going to end well. And, it's not going to go well. You know, and I'm, I'm very happy to be proven wrong. She's had a very good professional wrestling career. I think, you know, again, Shayna, the thing that works with uh, her, is she's very different from like 98% of the roster. Uh-huh. And it's just, it, it can work. Just, you know, I just kind of want them to stop fucking around, you know, just just do it. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, uh, it would remind me of not the same way because Oscar had more time, but just building Oscar up so long just to lose to. Charlotte at media that time, I was like, well, why did we just go through that for 900 days? You know, not that it was a struggle to go through, but to lose in the first shot, I was like, oh, you kind of seem kind of lame now. Exactly. So that's going to wrap up Elimination Chamber 2020. Overall thoughts and score out of 10, Kev? Uh, <clears throat> scoring it out of 10, I'd probably go with, uh, it's tough to say, somewhere between, I know I do this somewhere between thing, uh, I guess 6.5 and a 7. I think you gave it a 6.8. That seems about right. Um because I don't think anything on this show was bad. Like, there was not that one match that... There was not the Eric Rowan Big Show Steel Stairs match. I agree. Um, the worst thing on the card was the four-minute, I guess, pre-show match. Or the, you know, three-on-one handicap match was fine. It wasn't bad. Didn't overstay its welcome. AJ, like, Alistair, like we said, it was disappointing. But it wasn't at all bad. Um, and then you get some really good stuff in there. Like, the um, I really liked Andrade, Humberto, and, of course, Drew Gulak, Danny Bryan. Uh, an easy watch. Uh, the show did feel a little long. Like I don't think it needed to be three and a half hours. Um, but yeah, just you know, a relatively easy watch. Good, mostly good from top to bottom. I'd probably go closer to a seven, but yeah. Yeah, like you said, I get. I want six point eight. It was. Um, it felt like a lot of WWE shows for me where they they kind of tease you early into thinking it's going to be a really good show, mm-hmm. and they did that again here and. 
Overall, it got a little, little not bad in the middle. It slowed down, got a, it downward, spiraled a little in the middle, not badly. And I thought, like you said, I thought like a, kind of like a pretty good show, leaning towards good. It was better than I thought it was going to be, judging by the card going in, though, because this card, no offense to anybody on the card, because I'm sure a lot of people worked hard, it was a weak card going in. <laughs> yeah. I didn't expect. I think we said it yesterday. Like that's a show. Exactly. So you're 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 around the seven area. I'm around the seven area. Real quick, a glance at cage match. Cage match is going seven point zero six right now. Okay, so, I'm sure that you know fluctuate going forward, but that seems about right. Like it was an enjoyable show. Not every show has to be, you know, a home run. I do just real quick want to say, <clears throat> you know, how you were saying it feels like a lot of WWE shows. And that's one thing that I do want to give. Granted, it's only been a few, but like just look back at AEW Revolution. They managed to save some things that made that show feel special, whether it was Orange Cassidy putting in effort or um, I had a few other examples. Or Sammy Guevara's ridiculous 630 splash. Uh, you know, things like that felt like a major deal. And I feel like we need more of that on WWE shows. Maybe they need less pay-per-views. I don't know. But it just a lot of these pay-per-views don't feel like they're special things. Like I, you know, the only real memorable thing I feel like we're gonna have from the show, as great as Brian Gulak was, was Shayna Baszler's performance. You know, yeah, because she just um, fucking wrecked five people. Yeah, like that's something we don't see every day, and that's what made it, you know, special. So it just that's just something I wanted to point out and give some AEW praise there. I mean, granted, you know, we don't know how that'll be after they've had however many pay-per-views down the line, but yeah. Well, I definitely think the, the the advantage they have, obviously, in some ways, is only going to be running four to five pay-per-views a year. Because, yeah. as you said, you can save stuff, you can make things feel bigger. And the other thing that, honestly, I think we can agree on that hurt this show is the fact that we just had Super Showdown, like, ten days ago. Mm-hmm. That was very soon. So, you, you, you shoehorned that show in so close to this one. It hurts to build to this show. You don't... You don't. Nothing feels super important, and I know a lot of people were like, "Well, I wish that they did. They wouldn't have just given Roman the title shot because he came out and demanded it." But my feeling was, yeah. listen, Bill Goldberg said, "Who's next?" Roman said, "I'm your Huckleberry, motherfucker." Yeah. And the other thing was, we talked about this before. I know you and I, and, uh, Steve. The thing was with the elimination chamber match, like we knew Shayna was going to win this, unless there was some drastic last minute pivot. Okay. The other one would have been everybody knew Roman was going to win. And Mm -hmm. you then worry about, especially in a crowd like Philadelphia, people turning on that match because they know he's going to win. Yep. So I'm fine with Roman getting the title shot how he did and them transitioning to that tag team um, chamber match because I really enjoyed it. Again, not like a match of the year or anything. Thought it was really enjoyable, a little difficulty in the middle. But it was a positive addition to the show. And I'm not sure that the men's Elimination Chamber singles version would have been that good. Yeah, agreed. And I think a couple years ago they did the one that, I believe Roman won, it was like a seven-man chamber, and it was the weirdest thing. And, yeah, just sometimes you don't have to go that route. Like, this has happened before. People don't always have to go through the chamber, especially when it's blatantly obvious. You want to avoid those matches. Exactly. So, but yeah, again, Elimination Chamber, far from a bad show. Definitely better than I thought it was going to be going in. Largely had a good time. Like Kevin said, there was nothing bad on this show. And again, some people may disagree with that, but I don't think that I didn't find anything bad. 
maybe a little underwhelming here and there, but nothing For bad, sure, a yeah. lot of good. So an enjoyable show. Definitely I, I, anybody that gives it a seven or a little over wouldn't disagree at all with. And um, yeah, but um, I enjoyed that. And before we go, Kev, you got to shout out the Patreon and everything for everybody. Of course. So as I said earlier, the Twitter is at the Kevsta with an underscore in the middle, uh, three A's in Kevsta. And it's the same thing for Patreon, patreon.com slash the underscore Kevsta. I've uh, been doing a lot of exclusive reviews there. Um, just uh, top five list every week. Uh, coverage of Raw, Dynamite, Retro Reviews. I just posted today a Ring of Honor review from 2007. That was pretty cool. Um, So, yeah, definitely check it out if you can. Yep, make sure you give Kev a follow on Twitter. Give him a little support on the Patreon. And um, he's going to be back more often than not. We're having a good time talking. It's been good to get to know Kevin. And um, Mm -hmm. our Retro NXT review is going to run over the weekend when I review the ROH 18th anniversary pay-per-view, and Mark Radlich will also be back on the show for that. So we will have a full weekend show for you guys. But before we go, hang on a second, because Steve Cook is going to join me, and we are going to review WCW Greed 2001, the final WCW pay-per-view. All right, and we are back with Steve Cook. Steve, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing pretty, pretty doggone fantastic, Larry. That is good to hear, my friend. And uh, we're back with another uh, retro review. People seem to really like these, so we're going to keep mixing them in when we can. Steve, this time we're going back to March 18th of 2001. WCW Greed, the final WCW pay-per-view event drawing 5,030 people in the Jacksonville Coliseum in Jacksonville, Florida. Not only is this the final WCW pay-per-view, but a mere eight days later on March 26th, the final Nitro aired and WCW, as we know it, died. Bringing back some heavy memories here, man. I know. Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, a spot that would pop up in wrestling again in the future, actually. Amazing how that works out. Yeah. That's kind of a kind of a connection, right? Sure. I'll do it. There, there's some people kind of involved with the, that promotion on the show. That's right. So we are. Um, this is the final WCW pay per view, uh, and yeah, it's a it's a sad one to look back on in many ways. And uh, we were kind of we're just gonna kind of break it down, Steve. And we have a uh, Tony Schiavone, Scott Hudson on uh, commentary. Yeah, um, Tony's first line on the show I thought it was notable, where he says uh, something on the long lines of "If it's pro wrestling, it must be greed," which I mean, the guy wasn't wrong. No, he wasn't. He also looked like he had absolutely no soul during the show. Oh, no. He was. <laughs> he had checked out several years prior to this point. I mean, the, the fun-loving Tony Schiavone we, we see today uh, was not on this show. He was nowhere to be seen. Exactly. So, he wouldn't um, be hugging anybody on this show. No, no, no. <laughs> so our opening match is the, uh, the famous unscheduled WCW match between two guys to where they throw him out there with absolutely no chance, but... Usually the guys are good enough to get over. It was a staple of the company. Jason Jett, the former Easy Money, facing off with Kiwi. Uh, good old Kiwi, uh, also known uh, previously known as Angry Alan Funk. Um, I thought I had remembered Kiwi being a babyface uh, at some point, but apparently he's healed at this point because I'm sure there's a reason. I also noticed there was no Paisley, so that that kind of turned me against Kiwi right away. I mean, that's fair. 
And you remember, of course, you guys know Paisley went on to be uh, Queen Charmel. So there's yeah, that. Right. So nothing wrong with uh, Paisley, but we did miss her. That was also that they had uh, started like axing a ton of the women that had done the stretch of this company. Yeah, yeah, that's probably what happened there. So Booker got the meter at that point, I suppose. But uh, well, we we gotta mention Easy Money here real quick about about something that he did to uh, one of our friends allegedly. Yeah, for those of you that don't know, Easy Money uh, in the late '90s, early 2000s also made uh, made a living for himself making wrestling gear. Yeah. There are a number of guys that have done this over the years. I know. I think. Uh, well, Sasha's husband does this right now, right? Yes, he, he it's, it's, that's his job with WWE. Yeah. Yeah, and then AEW has. I think they have uh, the Seamstress Sandra. The Seamstress is over there now. Yeah, I think. From, of Total yeah. Divas fame. Yes. Yeah, Sandra, popular character there, and so yeah, they have people do this, and then on the Indies, you have guys that uh, make gear as well. I want to say the Hardy Boys uh, did this as well. I think so. I mean, I know they made their shit, but they might have made for other people. I can't remember offhand. It's it feels like forever ago, but you know. I might have been when they were breaking in. Come to think of it, they yeah. might be making here. But uh, at any rate, our good friend, uh, you might remember a good friend from way back in the podcasting days, uh, known on the independent circuit up in Iowa as Tony Sly. Yes, good good old Tony. Yeah, and uh, Tony was uh, early on in his career at this point, I guess. <laughs> It would have been 1990. It probably wasn't 1999, but uh, the guy wasn't that old. Uh, about 79, like I think. Yeah, yeah 79, <laughs> 82, somewhere somewhere during the Backlund title run. <laughs> Tony was looking for some gear to buy. He was he was paging through the classified ads, actually, and he had noticed this kid. Uh, he had this guy, this guy making wrestling gear, Mr. Easy Money, slash uh, later known as Jason Jet, probably has another name. But uh, Tony ponied up the money. Uh I believe he sent it to, to Mr. Jed via been what Pony Express, something like that. Something like that. Possibly a passenger, possibly a carrier pigeon might have done it. Uh, but at the end of the day, what ended up happening was uh, Mr. Jed collected Mr. Sly's money, and Mr. Sly ended up with no wrestling gear. Yeah, and that uh, unfortunately, not just uh, Jason Jed Easy Money. That unfortunately, there were some was, other people, I believe. Yeah, a regular <laughs> occurrence during that time frame of. Uh, Good brothers getting ripped off by not so good brothers, but yeah. And looking at Jason Jet's gear, I'm not quite sure why Mr. Slyer was interested. Anyway, I was never particularly a fan of the Easy Money Wrestling gear. Yeah, uh, what are you gonna do with that? But I mean, he, um, hey, Easy Money made his money, but uh, not, not everybody got <laughs> yeah. their gear. No, he didn't. So, uh, but he was uh, he was a guy that WCW picked up towards the end here. I think he'd only been there for like a week or two, and uh, he was turning some heads. Uh, he'd shown some potential in the ECW teaming with Chris Hamrick and Julio De Niro, and I wasn't surprised to see him pop up in this company and start to get a little attention, start to get a little bit of a push, and uh, that was kind of the point of this match was to establish Jason Jett as a uh, young up-and-coming star. Uh, Kwee-Wee was just kind of there being Kwee-Wee, and, you know, he, he was just a guy, let's be honest. I mean, he's he is a talented wrestler i guess you could say a good hand maybe but then again they were doing some crazy shit in this match too weren't they they really were uh yeah overall jason jet wins 12 15 um I, I thought it was good um they got some time and um you know they they went in with a cold crowd because it was it was very much a who the fuck are these guys situation yeah for the, the for a lot of fans people. towards the end weren't the happiest folks anyway yeah, but um, I thought um, I thought they did a good job of getting the crowd into it. They've had some really great and flashy stuff at times. 
And uh, it was enjoyable, man. They even uh, Easy Money even busted out the uh, the uh, Easy Money Kid uh, cast Super Rana spot. Yes, he did. So, he I also mean, took a completely insane bump to the floor, off and up and over. Yeah, which was uh, which was something. <laughs> oh, young and stupid. What are you gonna do? Indeed. Well, it got him noticed, I suppose. Although, <laughs> I guess it didn't really get him noticed because what do you do after dice of you? Yeah, but no. So I mean, it's um. I think that's a, it was a good little opener, and that, actually, now that you said it, what did he do after WCW? I'm going to look this up now that you mentioned it, because now I'm curious. Uh, rip people off on wrestling gear, but we know that much. <laughs> Beyond that, I'm really not sure, but uh, unfortunately for both these guys, they were they're in line for bigger things. I've certainly Jason Jett was. They were he was somebody that people noticed. He's starting to get a little bit of a pop and get some attention, and had this company continued on for at least a few more weeks. You have had a good chance to shine, that's for sure. But uh, unfortunately, he uh, kind of faded into oblivion. And Kwee uh, Wee, of course, uh, Angry Allen, call him what you will. He winds up going to uh, TNA and becomes Miss TNA. That is correct. You are not lying about that. And I want to say, was he also part of that Rainbow Express with uh, Lenny Lane? Was that was he Bruce? I believe he was Bruce. No, that was uh, Le- Lenny and Lodi, man. No, Lodi was. I thought no. I don't think Lodi was in that actually. Really? I don't think Christ, so. Christ, that feels like forever ago. We're probably got because they would just call him Lodi. Okay, you might be right think, then. I don't, think, I don't think Time Warner had a copyright named Lodi. All right, so Easy Money uh, went to Heartland Wrestling, so he was picked up in oh, the as, HWA. Yeah, uh, he, he was picked up in the uh, kind of the mass contract of all the geeks that uh, didn't have the big locked in money deal. He worked for Heartland for a while, was Heartland champion, and that lasted. He was in Heartland through 2002, and then he worked some uh, some TNA shots early on, we're working with uh, Tony Mamaluke and uh, like Sonny Siaki. Oh, sure. The old Siocalypse now. Yes. So, <laughs> let's see. He uh, he did some ROH, ML early MLW. I don't remember ROH at all. Well, like it was like was I it could, the Ram 2002 shows with like the super indie booking? Uh, it was 2002 losing to Paul London. Okay. Uh, then he he had a later match. He won a four way. Yeah, he had some not a ton of ROH appearances. A lot of scramble stuff, but you know. And then he had various indie appearances. He worked uh, National Wrestling League, House of Pain Wrestling, yeah, the HRP. Yeah, um, just like, yeah, he's had a, he had an indie career, and he worked through, according to Cage Match, he has a listing through 2015. Wow. So he did keep working, but obviously <laughs> didn't really land anywhere. But yeah, that's um. Well, you can tell they, they, you saw the potential, too, if they're going to put him in HWA, was one of their developmentals that, that, and during that time period. Yep. They put him there, and I guess, I guess Les Thatcher's probably booking at that point and made him the champion, so they saw something in the guy. Definitely. But uh, that's something never developed. Yeah. Well, I think at the time, you have to remember, too, WWE, he wasn't the style they were embracing back then. He wasn't a big dude. He didn't have necessarily a great physique. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't known for being a good promo, so that, like, knocked him way down the list right off the bat. And he, yeah, and also he wouldn't have had that name value like a Rey Mysterio or Eddie Guerrero would have had. Yeah, and Christ, remember, they didn't even bring in Rey at first, so. <laughs> no, they had to wait on that for a minute, but, uh, yeah, even even among those guys, he had to have some kind of name value, like Chava Guerrero. We've heard of him. 
That's right. Jason Jett, not so much. So that that was a good opener, though. I actually enjoyed that. And um, we moved on to the WCW Cruiserweight title match, which was a tournament final for the vacant titles. Elix Skipper and Kid Romeo defeating Billy Kidman and, as you mentioned, Rey Mysterio Jr., 12-42. And um, I enjoyed the shit out of this match, Steve. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting that they uh, didn't go with Rey and Kidman at first. And, you know, it's a it's a lot of spotty fun. It's also the kind of match that... um. This was like what the early 2000s indie tag scene was based off in a lot of ways. It was like a match like this because everybody loved Ray and a lot of those guys were Kidman fans as well. And um, I think honestly, you know, I kind of look back at this. This this is likely the last great WCW match. Hmm. It might it might be might very well be uh, the booking. I think the booking of playing Skipper and Romeo as the first champs is smart because uh, Kidman and Mysterio were big enough stars in WWE. They didn't really need that rub anyway. And you build to them chasing for titles, which, again, had the promotion continued, it would probably have gone on a lot longer and led to some more fantastic matches. As it ended up being, Kidman and Mysterio won the titles on the last episode of Nitro. Which, I don't think that match is quite on level as this one. Didn't get the same amount of time, obviously, being a TV match opposed to a pay-per-view match. But, uh... It was yeah, like you said, this is a very good match. It's very, it was kind of uh, shades of what you'd see later on in the you know cruiserweight slash X division slash tag team wrestling style. The one criticism I'd have about kind of the pacing of the show here is you're following up. You know, you just had the big uh, cruiserweight spot fest match. You followed it up with another one. I personally like to have something a little bit to slow things down in between, but maybe that's just me. No, and I agree, because card placement is important. That's actually, I talk about that all the time on various things. And um, Yeah, I wish they would have mixed it up a little bit, but um, I, I don't blame them for trying to get the show off to a hard, hot start, but I definitely would have shuffled some things around. So, speaking of shuffling around, we could have threw this in the middle, so we could have forgot about it. <laughs> Sean Stasiak defeating Bam Bam Bigelow 557 Steve what did you think of this match well I thought Stacy Keebler's out there that yes. is the main thing I took away from it is we found out that uh, excuse me <clears throat> oh as I cough up a lung over here um, as if we found out that uh, Sean St- Stasiak is now dating Stacy Keebler because I guess Stacy just had that kind of taste in guys so it was pretty fantastic uh, Stacy came out, cut a promo, and then uh, Sean had to talk. I don't know why Sean had to talk, but it happened. It was a thing that happened. I don't know why then, he had to be out there, period, but I mean. Well, and then Bam Bam comes out. I, I, Bam Bam, I I guess there was an instant prior where uh, uh, they had said something about fat and bald people, so Bam Bam took offense, obviously, being fat and bald. And uh, they go out there and, you know, it's amazing because, gosh, a couple years prior to this, I remember Bam Bam Bigelow being in ECW and having pretty darn good matches with Taz on pay-per-view for the television title. And he did a lot of good stuff there. And it wasn't that long after that that he was here doing this. Yeah. Yeah, man. He, when he fell off a cliff, he fell off a cliff. Yeah, it's like my first instinct is this is five stars because of Stacy Keebler. And yes. then the bell rang. <laughs> the match was about negative four stars. Yeah. So we'll give the whole presentation a one overall. But um, 
And I will say this. Sean Stasiak is actually a very nice dude. I interviewed him, interviewed him once. Super nice guy. He was not a good professional wrestler. And Bam Bam Bigelow just... I, I loved and respected that dude, but he did not give a shit at this point. No, he, he, he checked out just like a lot of other people checked out. And I remember this match continued. Uh, this feud continued because they had a match on the last episode of Nitro, too. And, uh, yeah, that was about as bad as this was. Yes, um, just horrible, horrible, horrible. First bad thing on the show. Then we At least that's Stacy. Yes, we got Stacy. And she's wearing, wearing her Miss Hancock attire, too. So. Oh, like that. that's just a legendary look, dude. So mm-hmm. Then we moved on to tag team action, Steve, and we saw Lance Storm and Mike Awesome defeat Hugh Morris and Conan. What yeah. a fucking odd combination of talent right here. Well, it brought me, you know, the one thing I will make the argument for with Hugh Morris and Conan was that they were both part of the Dungeon of Doom. Sure. That's what I got, you know, which I never knew. I never knew what Conan was in that group to begin with. But, uh, and Hugh Morris had been, he had been a general rection for a while prior to this. I don't know why he's Hugh Morris again. It changed with like, there was like the last eight or nine weeks of Nitro. He went back to Hugh Morris and they like broke up the, um, they broke up the misfits in action. Thank you. The because, misfits of action. I was call, yeah, about because, calling the buffins a fuckery, but yeah, cause Chavo shows up here later on and he's talking about how he like, uh, or they were talking about how he broke up with the misfits and became cruiserweight champion. That's right. So this went, um, like 1130 or so. um, it was a little long, but it wasn't bad. I actually liked Lance Storm and Mike Awesome as a team. They were actually like really good because Lance was really good and Mike Awesome was still really good at that time. Yeah. But, um, I mean, Conan at this stage was drastically slowing down. Hadn't been good in a long time. Hugh Morris was all right. And, like, at the end, it was like, it was okay. I think they maybe should have shortened it a little bit. And otherwise, would have been okay. Like, I didn't yeah. hate it. No, it, it ran a little long. Um, yeah, you had the Hugh Morris Conan tag team that didn't make any sense. Had had no flow, no chemistry. Uh, Storm and Awesome had, did have some chemistry. I thought it was kind of, I remember it being kind of strange at the time because they had just had a long feud between these two. I, I want to say that was Awesome even the 70s guy during that period, or that, Mike Awesome had like 15 different gimmicks in WCW in like a year. He was the... Which I think is a record. He was the uh, fat chick thriller 70s guy. And then like, I don't know. And now he's a Canadian and the, killer. Yeah, really yeah sense, so he's a Canadian killer camp. with a nice sensible haircut. Yeah, which which was nice to see. And, and I don't know if Felix was still with him or not. It's it's tough to say, but uh, yeah, uh, that Storm and Awesome could have been a great tag team somewhere, but uh, they didn't didn't quite get that chance. We had a bunch of backstage segments, which were highlighted by one in particular, which was Dusty Rhodes eating burritos. I heard yes, preparing for his kiss my ass tag team match against Ric Flair later in the night. Absolutely, I mean, <laughs> the American dream, if you will, Daddy. Still over in Jacksonville, of course. Oh, obviously. Yeah. Um, Cruiserweight Championship up next, Steve. Yeah. And that is uh, Sugar Shane Helms 
defeating Chavo Guerrero Jr. 13.55 for a title change. And Steve, I'll tell you what, I really enjoyed this match. I I liked it a lot. I thought they told a nice little story throughout. It felt different from a lot of the cruiserweight matches because it wasn't um, I get for lack of a better word, it wasn't as like high impact or spotty because Shane Helms and Chavo didn't work that like high intensity spot style. They could do uh, the spots, but Shane they, Helms did, but Chavo did. Well, Shane could, but he yeah. didn't all the time though. But um, I just um, I really liked it. You know, Shane Helms overcomes, and uh, you know, Chavo um, ends up losing the title here. And I still contend what I hated when the buyout happened is Shane Helms could have been if you wanted to keep the cruiserweight lightweights or whatever, or at the very worst middle card. Shane Helms could have been a marketable mid card guy for that company because he had. The dude had a good look. He had the sugar babies dancing with him. He had the little theme song. He had all of his fucking moves named. Like, it was everything WWE wants from a guy. In terms of being able to market them. And then they're like, oh, great, Shane, thanks for coming in. By the way, your name is Gregory. They can't have another Shane. Come on now. Got Shane McMahon. It'd been too confusing, you know, having the owner of SWB Shane and then Shane Helms also existing. It would have just been too confusing for the general public, Larry. Hey, at least they and, didn't name him Garrison. No, and I suppose the Sugar Babies were too expensive uh, for the budget. I guess. Uh, so they couldn't do any of that stuff. We had to change his name to Gregory. Oh, and it's not like they're going to let him use the Vertebreaker either. Ah, uh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff, and. The, you know, the vertebraker was the one annoying part of this match to me because freaking Chavo Guerrero was trying to do one, and that led to the, the uh, reversal into Shane doing one. And I just didn't buy it. Like, I'm just saying, why, why is Chavo trying to do a vertebraker? It didn't make any sense to me. Well, in, in theory, from what I get from the story, is Chavo was trying to be an asshole heel and beat Shane in his own game, which ended up costing him in the end. I, su- I mean, I suppose. I don't know, that, but uh, other than that, pretty good stuff. And uh, like you said, Shane Helms could have been a star, man. But he did become the Hurricane, and I've always kind of wondered: was he better off just being the Hurricane, or would have Sugar Shane have gotten higher up? In well, stage? I mean, I will say I know he said he made great money off the Hurricane gimmick. So yeah. I mean, and he had a he had a job for a long time. He got to work with the Rock, and he honestly didn't have to do a lot in that gimmick either. No, he didn't. So, I mean, I know he said he greatly enjoyed the Hurricane Helms character and everything, and that's awesome, and I'm glad that he did. And the Hurricane was a ton of fun at times. I'm just saying on the surface going in, Shane Helms could have been used as a star and used better, but, you know. Well, him and a lot of other people that were in that invasion storyline. This is very true. We had a tag team championship matchup next, Steve. Yeah. Chuck Palumbo and Sean O'Hare defending against Totally Buff, which was Buff Bagwell and Lex Luger. And, Steve, what happened here? <laughs> well, uh, Luger and Bagwell came out, and they, they talked for a while. And they kept talking and kept talking and kept talking. And then Palumbo and O'Hare came out and hit a few moves, and I think the whole thing wrapped up in, what, about 30 seconds or so? Uh, maybe a maybe a minute if that. It, yeah, it's because, like it's like fifty five or so seconds. Roughly. Yeah, maybe a minute because <laughs> Plumber O'Hare just ran through these guys like uh, you know like a hot knife through butter, 
and it's pretty enjoyable to see, especially, I remember watching this when I was a little kid, a little kid, a little kid, as a teenager, who am I kidding? I was watching this stuff, and I, and I was not a fan of Luger and Bagwell at this point, because to me, they had been around for way too long, and they're just two guys with uh, nice bodies that couldn't work anymore, from what I could tell, and uh, I was all about these two young guys coming up and just beating the snot out of them, and that's exactly what happened, so... Uh, 16-, 17-year-old Steve loved this. And, you know, it, it's fine today, too, because it looks like we're actually trying to make young stars here. We're trying to make people care about this Chuck Palumbo and the Sean O'Hare guy. We're trying to have guys that can be something in the future, and we're using our established guys like Luger and Bagwell to do it. Uh, to me, uh, this is a style of booking that you, frankly, don't see these days. And I don't know why I can't make a comeback, but, uh, you know, who am I to wonder these things yeah no i enjoyed the hell out of it at the time too because i really thought they were gonna have totally buff win this match during the time because i'm like it just felt like such a wcw move we're gonna take the title off these young guys that are like really exciting and people seem to like and put them on totally buff for reasons and that did not happen thankfully i i love this uh of course totally buff did the uh totally WCW thing after this match and just kind of got right up after the finish and walked up. Well, it'd be fun now. Bagwell laid there for a while, actually. Bagwell sound. Luger kind of got up and did nothing, but Bagwell was just kind of laying there for a while. They're even trying to tease his, like, neck injury from 1996 or whatever, but eventually he kind of got up. Of course, they always had to go back to the buff Bagwell neck injury, so. Well, that, <laughs> which, which would have been better if he was Bayface, quite honestly. It's like how Ric Flair's like Ric Flair's back injury is more important when he's a babyface. Yeah, when he's a heel, nobody cared. <laughs> so next up, we had the Cat and Canyon. The Cat Ernest Miller, nine hundred time World Karate Champion, best friend of Eric yes. Bischoff, hell of a dancer. Hell of a dancer, indeed. Miss Jones. And his, That's right. Miss Jones at his corner. He ends up defeating Canyon at 11-15, Steve. I don't know about you, but Jesus Christ, this felt long. <laughs> it was. It felt it was. like it lasted an hour. Miss Jones got involved. Uh, helped the cat. And like it just like kept going and going. And it was overbooked. And I just... Oh, Christ, again, you can do this stuff, but you don't... It doesn't have to be long. Shorten it up. (laughs) That finish with Miss Jones also ran forever, too, because she had the the shot where she came in and accidentally kicked the cat, and then, no, that wasn't good enough. We had to do a few more things after that, and eventually, we finally got a finish at some point. And uh, this is kind of the epitome of a match that was just there. Like, I didn't think it was a bad match. They're... They're trying hard. They're working, but man, nobody cared about this. Which you know, the storyline was what it was. And then you know, afterwards, Canyon has to get his heat back, and then uh, Smooth comes in and uh, makes the save. Who was uh, a bodyguard? Am I, I didn't know his bodyguard. He was, to be honest with you, he's somebody's bodyguard. It was yeah. It was it was Mi Smooth, the former Ice Train man. Mi Smooth, Mister uh, Yes Ice Train of. Fire and Ice, one of my favorite tag teams with uh, Scott Norton. That's right. Nice train. Good host I don't think they ever team. had. Good, I don't think they ever had a good match, but they were a good host team. 
They they had fun squash matches on Saturday night, dude. I'll tell they you. They did. I yeah, like Saturday night and worldwide. They're good on their shows, just beating people They're up, fucking murdering people. Yeah. Um. Unfortunately, this was not a good match. So. Cat is you know the cat was fun though. We liked the cat. He was. So and Canyon was Canyon was disturbingly bland here for some reason. Yeah. So next up we had the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship match. Which saw Booker T defeat our champion Rick Steiner in about seven and a half minutes. And I look at this match, Steve, and like the first thing I thought of is like, wh- why was Rick Steiner getting such a weird fucking push in the late 90s, early 2000s when it's the push he really should have gotten in the early 90s? I assume the reason he's getting pushed was because Scott was a freaking psychopath backstage and people didn't want to piss him off. Okay, well, that is fair. I will give you that. <laughs> But it's just like Rick Steiner at this stage was he was honestly, with all due respect, I love the Steiner brothers, but he was washed up at this point. He didn't give a shit at this point. And then the worst thing was half the time is he'd stiff the fuck out of people for no reason. Yeah, yeah, he would. He wouldn't sell anything and he would just beat the bejesus out folks. So, you know, this is a match where Booker tried really, really hard. And it really didn't work because it was bad, but he won the championship, which was the right call. At least he had that going for him, yeah. Oh, man, and and just to make it completely better, uh, just to make it even better than it already was, we had a finish where, uh, for some reason, Shane Douglas pops up. He has a cast on his arm. I assume that somebody broke his arm at some point, which I didn't even remember Shane Douglas ever being a babyface at this point, but... Uh, he decides to pop up and hits Rick Steiner with a cast. So, freaking, you know, Booker T can't get a clean win on this guy. Yeah. He needs help from Shane Douglas. Although, although to be fair, Rick Steiner didn't even sell the cast shot. So, I guess it didn't, didn't matter that much. He sold it like you'd sell walking into the wind, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure Rick has done a few times in his life. So. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that was just, uh, yeah, not, not, nothing good here. So... We have the next match, Steve, which is a kiss-my-ass match between <laughs> Dustin and Dusty Rhodes yes. and Jeff Jarrett and Ric Flair. Uh, Ric so, Flair, by the way. We have to point out Ric Flair's ring attire for this match. Yes, Ric Flair was in give-no-fucks end-of-WCW <laughs> mode wearing, like, khakis and a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, beef shoes or loafers he had something on too, which, I mean, for God's sakes, uh, I know nobody gives a crap anymore because it's a dying day's WCW, but didn't Ric Flair used to have some pride in how he dressed? Didn't the guy used to walk out there in like $10,000 suits and whatnot? What happened? What's going on here? He's WCW happened. Yeah, he's out here wearing $15 Walmart Hawaiian shirts. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it was kind of sad, but that part is kind of sad. But you know what? You know, one of my favorite parts of the show, watching Dusty Rhodes do his old offense against Ric Flair and Jeff Jarrett. I enjoyed it. Okay, well, let, me, let me tell you this. This match <laughs> this match was better than Booker T and Rick Steiner. It was better than the Cat versus Canyon. It was better than Hugh Morris and Conan versus Landstorm and Mike Awesome. And it was better than Bam Bam Bigelow and Sean Stasiak. So, yes. This was actually a solid wrestling match that was played for the hits. Dustin and Jeff Jarrett worked a lot of the way, but the crowd loved Dusty Rhodes. 
They fucking lost their shit when he got the tag in and work with Flair. And they sat there and, like you said, Dusty got to do all of his offense. Hot tag. Elbows galore. Running wild. Well, I mean, strolling mildly at this point for Dusty. Much much love. No disrespect. Everybody knows I love Dusty, but let's be real. He wasn't doing much running at this stage. No. And um, just, I mean, it was fun. Dustin and Dusty win the match. And it was a perfectly solid wrestling match that entertained the crowd. I did not hate this at all. And I don't think you can hate it when the crowd is that into it because the wrestling was okay. And like you said, seeing Dusty and Flair kind of... In 2001, seeing them play the hits one more time. Very cool. You like to see that. And uh, I hate to say it, but, uh, you know, if this took place in Saudi Arabia about 20 years later, the uh, the world title probably would have been on the line in this match somehow. And they also would have made like a million and a half bucks a piece, too. So good for them. Yeah. And then we get Dusty versus uh, Roman Reigns at WrestleMania. Well, I tell you what, I mean, no way Roman would have been <laughs> cheered then. <laughs> Dusty at this point might have as good a chance having a good match as Goldberg. So that's not very nice, is it? <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> I just uh, I, I joked with Mark last night because we're we're recording this on the uh, on the first, by the way, and we're airing it later. But um, we were joking about uh, the Fiend Goldberg match, like. Can you imagine the backstage meeting? Bray walks up and like, what do you want to do tonight, Bill? And, and he looks at him and he goes, I got three minutes and five spears in me, brother. That's it. You're going down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that kind of reminds me of the story Eddie Kingston told where he was, he was working against Sid Vicious on some indie show. And like the promoter comes up to him and tells him, well, I'd like to see you guys go 20 minutes. I'd like to see... I like to see Sid sell for you and do all this stuff. And Eddie knew this wasn't going to happen. So he just walked up to Sid and was like, hey, what are you feeling like tonight? And Sid was like, eh, how about a choke slam, powerbomb? And he's like, cool. <laughs> the promoter is expecting like this 20-minute, the classic, you know, like, you know, from like, he's expecting Sid Vicious from like 1990 or whatever. But, uh, you know, in like 2010, you weren't going to get that. Well, the thing is, Eddie Kingston was smart enough to know, A, Sid in that time frame could not go 20 minutes. No. And B, that all fans wanted to see was Sid to hit like a big boot choke, choke slam and powerbomb. Right. Nobody's paying for Sid Vicious to go 20 minutes in the 2000s. Okay? And Eddie's smart enough to know that. Yeah. He knows his role. <laughs> but yeah, and same deal with like Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair in 2001. This is a this is what you expected from them at that point. This is all that anybody wanted to see yeah. from them. And again, it goes to the point of how how many times we talk about Steve playing to your audience. Mm-hmm. And there were still enough old time NWA fans that supported WCW, especially in a venue like Jacksonville, Florida, that oh, yeah. having Dusty and Jarrett on the or Dusty and Flair on the card, while you could joke about it all you want, was a selling point for a lot of people, and they loved it. It was. I mean, you know, that crowd would have been smaller if Dustin and Flair weren't on, the, weren't on the card. And you had Dustin and Jarrett in the match to, you know, make it, uh, you know, a wrestling match, right? That's right. <laughs> so we close up with our main event of the evening. 
the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, championship held by Scott Steiner. And if you look back at the year 2000, the WCW World Championship was a complete clusterfuck of a joke. Absolutely. It was probably vacated almost as many times as people actually held it. They did about 900 title changes in the year 2000. It was fucking horrible, but thankfully when Scott Steiner got the title, they actually started like stabilizing the scene a bit. They didn't do 800 title changes, which was nice. And he faced off with DDP here, Steve, and at the end of the day, it was a Falls Count Anywhere match, and Scott Steiner, following a distraction from Medeja, hit DDP with a pipe, beat him with the Steiner recliner to retain, and... In all honesty, it was a good main event. It was better than I expect. I, I remembered because I didn't remember a ton about this pay-per-view. I remembered liking the Cruiserweight match. I remember Dusty and Flair. But I didn't remember like a ton of details. This was better than I thought. I thought it was good. They didn't use a ton with the stipulation, so to speak. Um, but they at the same time, they didn't go totally overboard with it. I thought it was kind of a happy medium. And... um. You know, the Steiners beat the shit out of Booker T to close the show, and it was a, it was a good main event. Yeah. it You know, it kind of reminded me of something that I, I thought about a while ago, and it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, it's a shame that I think Diamond Dallas Page kind of gets slept on by a lot of people, mostly because Ric Flair buried him in his book. Ric Flair wrote this book back in mid-2000s. He, he talked about how... He talked about how DDP was like a bad worker and not a deserving WCW champion. And I think a lot of people kind of took that as gospel for a long time. But uh, that wasn't quite the way I remembered it when I watched it originally. And uh, when I do go back on the network and watch the WCW stuff and see some DDP pop up here and there, uh, that's still not the way I remember it. I mean, I, uh, Paige was a pretty darn good worker. Uh, he could get a lot out of people. I, I know he gets knocked for planning things out, but... Uh, that's all they do now in the wrestling business is plan things out. And they have a whole performance center set up for that sort of thing. So he was probably ahead of his time in that regard. But, uh, nevertheless here, a perfectly fun brawling type match. Uh, again, you know, having falls count anywhere means that, uh, and having their disqualification means, uh, you know, Scott Steiner can do his stuff. He can, he can cheat and whatnot. And Paige needed to cheat here, have a chance to get Steiner because Steiner was just run through everybody at this point. So, uh, it was an enjoyable match. And, of course, you had Rick come down. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't give Medeja a shout-out. Come on now. Speaking of, of people we forgot about, we the nervous starts kind of falling through the cracks over the years. But, uh, yeah, the story here was uh, Paige eventually getting beaten up and just beaten down and getting, you know, knocked the heck out. And that's kind of part of the story they're building overall with Steiner where, he was getting credit for running all these top stars out. Like uh, he ran like Sting, and I think Goldberg was mentioned. There, but like there's a list of names that he was uh, getting rid of. Kevin Nash was yeah. on that list, and uh, the plan eventually was for all of them to eventually come back, which would have been could have been interesting to see. But of course, uh, you know, that didn't quite happen. They ran out of time. But it was it was an interesting story they're telling. I thought. So, you know what, you brought up the DDP thing. It, what cracks me up is there are people that shit all over DDP for the the planning out matches things. And, like, my big thing is nobody shits on Randy Savage for doing the same thing. Nope. Again, we've, we've, I know we've mentioned this in the past, Steve. I mean, Ricky Steamboat has talked about in documentaries about 
having to go and work out with Randy and to ring in his in his yard and the notebooks and notes and everything. And Hogan said the same thing about their WrestleMania match. And he's like, I don't know how Randy liked to plan everything. And you look at Steamboat and Flair, and it's a fucking awesome match. You look at the Hogan Savage match, that's up there with one of Hogan's best mania matches. Yeah. And nobody shits on Randy Savage for getting a notebook out and writing his shit down. But DDP, because Ric Flair buried him, because he got into the business late, because he was Eric Bischoff's friend, has all these things against him so people will shit all over him. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. And uh, uh, if you want to get exa- I mean, speaking of, you know, Randy Savage and DDP, now talk about, they had a, quite a few days W as well. And you had two guys there who were, meticulous planners who wanted everything to be perfect. And of course, when they got together, they were on the same wavelength and that led to, uh, that led to DP's career going, uh, going upward and onwards. No doubt about it. I know Paige gives a lot of credit for that. Oh, he constantly praises Randy Savage for helping him get to that next level because Randy was at a point that he didn't have to work with him if he didn't want to. No, <laughs> he didn't have to worry. Savage didn't have to work with anybody. Come <clears> on now. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's a, uh... WCW Greed 2001, the final WCW pay-per-view, Steve. Overall, Steve, what are your thoughts on this show, and what would you give it out of 10? Mm. I got to tell you, overall, I mean, there are a couple low points. I mean, we talked about the that Cat Canyon match. We talked, I mean, Booker T and Rick. We talked about poor Booker and Rick Steiner. There were, the and there's like that Team Canada match. There's some stuff that was just kind of there. A Stasiak Bigelow, of course, but hey, you got off to a hot start with a couple of great cruiserweight ta- cruiserweight matches. That tag match, I mean, Dusty and Dust, Dusty and Flair and Dustin and Jared put on a heck of a show. Cruiserweight title match was good, and I thought, you know, I liked that tag team title match. I enjoyed totally buff getting squashed, and hey, I thought the main event delivered. So, I think I'd have to give it a good solid. Uh, I, I might be a little nicer. I'm gonna give it a nice solid seven. I enjoyed it. All right, dude. That that is a good uh, good score, and I largely agree. I ended up enjoying this event more than I um, remembered. So, um, again, I marked out for the Flair and Dusty stuff, like the early cruiserweight stuff. Main event was a uh, good and enjoyable. Uh, what else did I like? Uh, uh, Chavo, Chavo, Chavo and Shane Helms <laughs> was also a really good match. Yeah, we saw Stacy Keebler. Always good. And um yeah, I um I'm kind of in the six point five range or so. And just for comparison, you went seven, right? Yeah. Okay, four one one's Kevin Pantoja, I know as a review up here, and I'm gonna pull it up in a second. Right. Uh Cage Match, the uh consensus score on Cage Match uh, through combined ratings is a six five. Okay. And let me see here. Okay, Kevin's review is loading and Kevin gave this show a seven as well, Steve. Okay, well it's so it- Feels like we're kind of all in the same boat here for those yeah. of us who watch the show. So really solid to kind of low-level good show. Um, and again, late-level WCW gets a lot of shit, but uh, this had definitely had its moments. I enjoyed it, and um, kind of fun to look back, Steve. Yeah, and like I said, you could kind of see where they're building some things with the booking. I thought they had some. It seemed like they had some good ideas going forward. Again, if uh, you know, if uh, plans don't go awry the way that they did. Like if uh, if Bischoff and his buddies end up buying the company, maybe that some of that stuff ends up happening, or maybe they have their own ideas. Who knows? All I know is that we what we end up getting was uh, yeah, yeah yeah exactly. 
Oh, what are you going to do about that? So, But uh, I, I do want to thank everybody. Um, again, shoot out suggestions for the retro reviews. I have a couple in mind for Steve and I to tackle going forward, and we're going to try to fit these. So that'll wrap us up for this evening. I want to thank everybody for listening. This has been the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, the411mania.com website, any major podcasting platform out there. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choice. Hit the thumbs up and subscribe on YouTube as we would greatly appreciate it. And have a great week, everybody.